Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Alright, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Halloween H2O, Colin, 20 years later. Originally titled Halloween 7, the, what was it, the Revenge of Laurie Strode, I think was what it was coming down to. But I know the, the working title was Halloween Water. <laughs> I watched this with my sister and that whole time she was trying to figure out H2O, I'm like, it's Halloween 20, it's 20 years later. She's like, yes, but the H2O makes no sense. I'm like, well... It had an effective marketing campaign because I was 10, 11 when this movie came out, and I still remember. So I guess, you know, they if it was today, they would have really missed a boat by not having, like, Michael bottled water. I don't remember. If <laughs> bottled water wasn't as prevalent at the end of the 90s. So here in America, at the tail end of the 90s, bottled water was still viewed kind of as, like, a, a rich person thing, like a sophisticated... <laughs> I think I drank from the hose until I was like 15. So, you know. It's... But see, it would have been perfect because it, it's a private school. <laughs> all those rich, spoiled kids. The elite of the uh, country, you know, the only ones that go out to see Halloween movies, especially in <laughs> 1998. We'll, we'll get to it, but there was, I think, a, a bevy, a, a litany of missed opportunities with Halloween H2O. But that does bring us to the welcome here. And welcome to the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong my name is alex joined as always by my friend and co-host julio as we continue on we're now entering part five of our six-part series titled haddonfield knights our canonical chronology voyage alongside the incomparable michael myers now known in some circles as mike o myers julio <laughs> how are you doing on this evening aside I'm, I'm hoping you wore some sunglasses this evening i failed to warn you how star-studded and blinding this evening would be it was just energizing it was like uh in uh you've read the dark knight graphic novel mm -hmm. in superman you know his the the atomic bomb goes off or something he, he's just basically a, a, like a skeleton but then he manages to fly through all the smoke uh and makes it to the sun and then the sun gives him life again, and he becomes Superman again. That was me watching H2O after after a whole shift at work. I turned it on, and it was just nonstop star power. From, from the jump, it was just nonstop. If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, uh, we do appreciate you tuning in. Returning listeners, you know we appreciate you all too. Give us a moment here while we explain what it is we do here. Uh, here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is typically about 90% and above, known as Certified Fresh a lot of the time. Make a case for maybe why it should be taken down a few pegs, or maybe why it doesn't deserve that high of a claim. Conversely, 
we find a movie typically 30% or below uh, and, you know, known as rotten, as they say. They love to say a movie's rotten and we'll make a case for its positive merit. Now, this is a bonus episode uh, here on Haddonfield Nights in the month of October as we count down to Halloween Nights, where we will be discussing the 2018 direct sequel uh, of Halloween uh, which is, of course, a fresh film on Rotten Tomatoes. So we'll get a little bit more in line with it then. But this is a bonus film, so we're kind of bending our rules a little bit. Halloween H2O stands at 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, Julio, this would fall in line with what we refer to as a gray area episode. Yeah, but there's there's nothing typical about Halloween H2O. Therefore, we won't follow the typical rules. This time we're going with uh, Rotten Tomatoes says it's rotten, so we'll treat it as a rotten movie which means we're going to sing its praises uh, in Contreras Corner. And there are plenty of praises to sing, and it's not just from Creed. You know, we'll, uh... <laughs> So that lends into one of my first questions, Julio, bringing up Creed. Uh, how did you watch this movie? Uh, well, you might remember, I, I don't know if I brought it up while we were recording, but I know I told you at some point, it was it was streaming on CBS. And, uh, and I do have... Uh, I have this contentious love-hate relationship with uh, CBS All Access. Uh, I mean, it's not like uh, one of the most expensive uh, streaming services. It's certainly one of the most frustrating as far as uh, just getting it to fucking work when you want to. You know, they, they have some uh, some shows that I like, which is the main reason we have it. And so it's especially uh, good when I find something else that, that adds value to us having a CBS All Access subscription, and they had both Halloween H2O and Halloween Resurrection uh, available to stream. So I was like, awesome. I'll knock both of them out, even though we're not doing Resurrection. I was like, oh, just for completion's sake. Uh, and of course, today I get ready, and it wasn't there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I shook my fist. CBS, you got me again. So I rented it from Amazon Prime, and that was fine. It was okay. It was, you know, they just have their standard pricing of two ninety nine. I think for every single Halloween movie, except for the original, which I think might have maybe I lucked out and I got the original for one ninety nine um, on, on a special deal. But gotta say, two ninety nine for this movie uh, could have done a lot worse. Amazon Prime to the rescue once more. Uh... In preparation for Haddonfield Nights, I had been slacking for quite some time, but I went ahead and finished my Halloween collection and bought Halloween 3 Season of the Witch as well as Halloween H2O. And I'm not sure what warehouse they dusted this off of. I bought it off Amazon and it it came brand new, but this was like the legitimate either 99 or 2000 DVD release of it. I, I put it on and I just said aloud to no one the state of these menus. It was just like, um, I, it's it's hard to explain. Anyone that has the original release DVD, the dimension of H2O can attest to just the chaos that was the menus. Instead of chapters, they were called chapter stops or it, it, the verbiage was very strange. <laughs> but the, the reason I mentioned Creed and kind of segued into this was the special features on the disc were a featurette on the making of, which I didn't get to watch the whole thing. I think the theatrical trailer was on there, which do you remember at the genesis of DVDs, every DVD came with a movie's theatrical trailer? Yeah. I mean, do they not anymore? Did they stop doing that at some point? Yeah, they did. Probably around... Mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s, they stopped. My understanding was it had to do with, for a lot of like 
movies that you or I would like, uh, but don't necessarily, you know, DVDs were a novelty in the beginning and they could charge 20 bucks a piece for every movie that came out. That obviously changed right. to the point where, you know, the movies that are in the $5 bin, it's not worth it for the film studios to have to pay the licensing rights for the music that they use in the trailers. So eventually they just kind of stopped doing that. Again, there could be other reasons for it, but that was the one that I read initially. So um, not saying that's the sole reason, but got the H2O trailer in there. And then the coup de gras, the coup de grass, as Dusty Rhodes would say, was they had whatever fucking Creed song they use in this movie, the music video for it. <laughs> that was a promotional tie in with this movie. So Julio and I, more so I, have endlessly fawned for days of yore and the nostalgia of the 90s. And we both. I'm right there with you. In, in this aspect, I'm right there with you. We both also, going way back to episode eight, talking about the art of the movie soundtrack that is lost. And we actually reprised that discussion when we had, we did this mini episode on Mission Impossible about how Mission Impossible 2 was the last movie that an original soundtrack was part of its marketing campaign. Now, Halloween H2O, last big movie. Someone already is seething, about to tweet us that <laughs> some fucking Wes Anderson dribble had some, oh, this is the original soundtrack. Um, but I think even more so than the soundtrack composed of notable artists specifically for a movie, one thing I miss so dearly is crossover music videos. Obviously, music videos are not really a thing anymore, and they're certainly not a thing in the way they were when Julio and I were younger. But there were two types of promotional music videos for movies. Number one, you had the complete immersive, the music video takes place <laughs> in the universe of the movie that it's promoting or that was tied in with too big. That was my favorite kind. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have talked about no less than five times on this podcast, smashing pumpkins, music video for Batman and Robin, where they're like mm -hmm. in Batman's cowl, but it is somehow also Gotham city. And they're like flying while they perform outstanding. Uh, and then also, uh, <laughs> our podcast friend and, uh, contributor from our curse of Michael Myers episode, Reed, once had to explain to me and then show me, or I looked it up on my own because I didn't really believe what he was telling me, the music video for Teenage Dirtbag that oh, yeah. was to promote a movie that we had covered in the past, uh, Loser, where it is also immersed in there. So those are two shining examples. If you don't know what we're talking about, maybe a little bit younger and that was before your time, check those out. I'm getting to the point here. There was also the other type of music video that was cross-promoted with films was what we have here in this Creed music video, where it was a video they just filmed any way they wanted, and then in post-production, <laughs> somebody just overlaid horrible quality clips from the movie of just, like, the actors smiling, and then maybe when the music crescendos, specifically for horror movies, there's, like, you know, Michael swinging a knife. It filled me with just such warmth that... <laughs> I don't know if I've experienced since September 11th. It was just a, a hell of an experience. I mean, it's it's better than nothing. But of course, you always want the other kind of video where Michael comes and starts playing with the band. Oh, yes. During the bridge. I can't remember who the metal band is that did a song for one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets that like Freddie was in. And it's exactly <laughs> to your point. It's like, yes, this is exactly how it should be. So 
saying that to say I watched the DVD and then also the ultimate nostalgia trip, if that wasn't enough already, because it was a DVD formatted for, you know, the old school four by three television screens. Is that letterbox? Oh, four by three letterbox? I, I don't know the dimensions, but it's just basically so you got a pan and scan. Yes. Where you were not getting the full picture. And but it was also the widescreen version of that. So it was like widescreen <laughs> at a four to three ratio. Immediately, my sister was like, what the fuck? Why is the picture so small? And I had to explain. I was like, well, this was made for like TVs before there were widescreen TVs. The Scream DVD I have is exactly like that. And I don't know. I just I almost wished I had a CRT TV just to bust out so I could hook the DVD player up to it and let it rip. But OK, so so, so technically you were getting the full picture. Right, because they they didn't cut anything out. No, they just it okay. It was widescreen for what was capable at the time. It just didn't take up my entire TV. <laughs> it was uh, uh, that's adorable. Yeah, I misspoke. Letterbox is the actual idea of the widescreen, so it was technically a letterbox version of it. It was just scaled way down. So going into this movie, I'm already just swelled with nostalgia and excitement from just the aesthetics of what are in front of me. It hadn't even, Joseph Gordon-Levin hadn't showed up yet. So we had a long way to go. Now that we're got all that out of the way, the table's set, so to speak. Y'all know what we were watching, what you could be watching at home if you want to do so uh, before or after listening to this episode. Before we just launch into our thoughts here on Contrarian's Corner, it was at 52%, meaning that pretty much every other person said yay or nay. Uh, Julio... In your research, what did you find the critics were saying about this? Uh, so here's uh, a few rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, uh, starting with Mike DeWolf from Apollo Guide, who says, What's worse than releasing a movie about Halloween in the summer? How about a video about Halloween at Christmas? Or subtitling a movie that has nothing to do with water, H2O? <laughs> to that I say, Mike, you need to relax. All this stuff is stuff that has nothing to do with the movie. He's focused on the marketing campaign, on the the subtitle of the movie, just just judge the movie on its own. Uh, Eric D. Snyder from ericdsnyder.com, he simply says, the Michael shows up and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he's not wrong. That's true. I mean, I, this is not necessarily a bad thing in the movie, but Michael Myers is easily the least interesting character in a cast of thousands. <laughs> And finally, going back to uh, kind of a staple of this Haddonfield Night series, Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times says, I imagine Miss Lee telling her friends, they wanted me to do a cameo in the remake of Psycho, but I said, hell, I'd do Halloween H2O before I'd lower myself to that. Referring, of course, to Janet Lee from Psycho, original Psycho fame, I think, who uh, shows up in this movie. Yeah, I think that might have been a dig at the Psycho remake, though. Wasn't that 1998 also? <laughs> it was also in the, the days before... People were superstars, you know, as in uh, Vince Vaughn was not a superstar yet. Jesus. It, it was part of his coming out party, I think. Okay, so uh, that that came out afterwards. So The the Vince Vaughn Psycho? Yeah, it came out on December 4th of 1998, directed by Gus Van Zandt. I didn't realize he directed it. Well, I guess they, they probably were still talking about it. Oh, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, ahead of time. That That's one of those things of like, God, do you remember the original X-Men movie, how far in advance we knew it was coming out? Something like a remake of Psycho? Yeah, that probably would have been talked about for many, many years. My God, it's got a hell of a cast, too. You've never seen it? I have not. Do you know what it's like, though, right? Not really, like, no. What it's, the gimmick is? I mean, it's not just that it's in color, which, <laughs> eh, that's fine. Uh, they, it's, it's 
a shot by shot remake of Hitchcock Psycho. Oh, that he like Gus Van Sant literally just did a shot by shot, like everything is framed the exact same way except for one tiny scene. I see. That I will not spoil for you in case you ever watch it. Well, being that it's 38%, it might be a future episode at some point. <laughs> yes. Halloween H2O takes us back to the tumultuous time of 1998. I find myself using that word tumultuous quite often here in Haddonfield Nights. But we kickstart. The defibrillator strikes, and we're launched in. We are dropped into the world of Langdon, Illinois on October 29th. Not Haddonfield. It starts in Langdon. We get a title card. It is October 29th of 1998. When I was watching this, I was trying to just kind of mentally quiz myself. I said, who is the WWF champion then? And then, (laughs) of course, I remembered that the title was being held in abeyance because Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, and Kane could not resolve to a proper means who the champion was. So it wasn't just a rough time for uh, people in Langdon, Illinois, specifically Jimmy, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. People all over the world were struggling at this point. Um, Everybody was distracted. Uh, Even Michael Myers, just uh, killing outside of date. I I mean, I don't know. I I guess throughout the series, he he kills ahead of time. It's not that he only kills on Halloween, even though it sounds like that's part of the mythos, that he only comes on Halloween and that's when he kills. But no, we've seen him kill ahead of time. I just still, when it said uh, October 29th, I I felt this sort of a, a false sense of security because I was thinking, oh, it's not Halloween yet, so nobody's going to die. Whatever happens here is just going to be jump scares, maybe some ominous going-ons, but no nothing serious. And then, of course, the movie proved me wrong <laughs> right away. Well, he's getting sharper, too, Michael, that is, because, you know, he's learned how to drive and all that good stuff, but here he's learning. he's learning about timing. So he's here to kind of just take care of some incidental kills just to get him to his ultimate goal. This is like a side quest in the Michael Myers RPG. He's off doing this because it's going to help him get to his ultimate goal on on the date he needs to. It takes us a little while to piece this all together, but where he goes is to the home where our man, our myth, our legend, Donald Pleasance, Dr. Sam Loomis, retired. Uh, and he ended up passing away, as we had covered in the uh, previous episode. All his records, everything of that nature was there. Michael breaks into this home, raids and ransacks, finds the folder labeled uh, Laurie Strode and steals it. Um, The way we find all this out is the person who lives there, the caretaker uh, in the last few years of Loomis's life, was Marion Chambers, played by Nancy Stevens. Julio... I highly doubt you recognize this actress, but I'll ask just in case. Is she the lady from uh, that we all hate in the bus in Speed? <laughs> <laughs> that could have been. That pops every now and again. Uh, no, it's Nancy Stevens is the actress's name. She's the woman who played the nurse that drove Sam Loomis to uh, Smith's Grove in the original Halloween. Oh, my God. Wow. Going all the way. I shouldn't be surprised because this movie, it is uh, just... There's so many references, so many callbacks, so many just meta textual moments that, of course, of course she is. I, I, that's that's on me for not even piecing that together. Uh, now, Alex, this is just, I appreciate, it's funny because it, it feels like for Haddonfield Nights, we're mostly focusing on the really bold entries in the Halloween series. 
not counting the original Halloween, which I guess had a boldness of its own in the sense that it was the first one, right? But then it was, oh, Rob Zombie's take was just so out there, so Rob Zombie. And then Season of the Witch was just a complete departure. Fuck Michael Myers, we're going on our own. And then uh, Curse of Michael Myers was like the stars, the constellations. (laughs) There's a cult. And now this one is just kidding. None of that happened. There is not even like a text or narration or anything that that tells you by the way don't worry about the fact that last time you saw dr loomis he was kind of possessed by the what's it called like the cross the thorn by the thorn right that was the last movie ended with that well i guess and michael myers kind of with his hat just walking into normal life uh this movie doesn't even tell you that that's don't worry about it it just instead it expects you to piece it together in this very long opening scene when, as you see the, uh, you know, newspaper clippings on Loomis's office. And I don't know, it just felt, it felt good that I wasn't being babied, that I was kept on my toes. And I, I know, I mean, this was my first time watching You said you kind of sort of watched it before, but were you confused the first time? Or were you also just like, oh, whatever you say, I'm, I'm, I'm in for the ride. I don't think at that point in my life, the first time I saw this was when I was in high school. And I think I tried to just piece together stories on my own, so to speak. Yeah, my main confusion was because Halloween 6 at that point still, I kind of just blocked it out of my memory. But (laughs) my main confusion with this and even upon rewatch, because I forgot until a certain point that it's a direct sequel to part two, was where's Jamie? What happened to Jamie? Uh, Because I know she died in six, but in that timeline, Jamie is Lori's daughter. So I would have thought there would have been some mention about it. But obviously, there is not because we got to stick with it here and ride it out. We honestly, you know, we don't get much time to process that in the first 10 minutes of this movie because obviously viewing this through 1998 lenses isn't as like, oh, my God. But in 2020, it's like, holy shit, there's Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's like the only triple threat (laughs) left in the game. There he is. And he plays the role of the young and very mm, rebellious, rambunctious Jimmy, a teenager who vows to go check out the home that was broken into. She's the, He is the neighbor of uh, Marion Chambers and ends up just taking her beer. And But he does at least do an inspection of the house. Did you notice that he does not even survive long enough until his name appears in the opening credits? Yep. When, by the time that his name appears, he's dead. That's It's awesome. But he gets the end credit, which made me try to contextualize where he was in his career to where he would be credited, you know, and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Jimmy, Timmy, <laughs> you know, his character. <laughs> James. I guess he was, Jimothy. He was uh, Third Rock from the Suns, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, I think maybe? we talked about this off air yep so he would have been uh, a few seasons into third rock from the sun that was a primetime tv show right that was like on nbc i think it was Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah that would have been a a substantial deal and a bit of a get and it was obvious here that that was the idea that it was a get because it's like he gets a big reveal (laughs) shot julio you had mentioned this movie keeping you on your toes and kind of setting the table for halloween the likes of which we had not experienced before and this first kill here with joseph gordon levitt this this is like a Jason Voorhees type kill. This isn't your traditional Michael kill. He gets a yep. a fucking uh, ice skate jammed through his entire face, and it's not like he just cut him with it. This thing is jammed. They're gonna need a prying bar of some sort to get that out of his face. It's uh, 
The visual is shocking and more shocking is this is a Michael for a new decade, a new generation. He's as violent as he's ever been. It's malicious, too, because his buddy, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's buddy, he, I mean, he also gets killed, but th- it doesn't seem anywhere near as bad as what happened to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He just kind of, the nurse opens the door and he's there and he just falls, right? But Gordon-Levitt, is, he's just, he wasn't just murdered, he was disfigured. If I hadn't watched the entire movie, if I just watched that clip, I would think, wow, that was that was personal. Whatever JGL's contract was, was the opposite of Hayden Panettiere's in Scream 4. The one where she couldn't die on screen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like, I have to have the most vicious possible death ever seen in a Halloween movie. Joseph Gordon-Levitt eats it. His buddy wearing his ICP jersey eats it. Our returning guest, Nancy Stevens, uh, unfortunately, as the cops arrive, she goes to yell and get their attention. It's too little, too late. Day late and a dollar short. Michael grabs her, slits her throat. The cops notice, oh, wow, there's been two breaking and enterings, and we fade to black. Get the investigation coming in. One of the detectives there seems to be a bit young and fresh on the case, and They're talking about, could this be Michael Myers? And I think his line is, Michael Myers, what are the chances? And then we fade to the opening (laughs) credits. Or excuse me, not even a fade. It's just a wipe of the credits. Yep. It's been like at least 10 minutes, maybe 12. And that's that's when you get... I mean, I think... Was it last episode maybe that we joked about how uh, about just a whole reel before the opening credits, like the A-team? And uh, (laughs) this one was the case. It's just... It's a whole reel, and then we can't have our cake and eat it too. I understand that, and I have nothing against Tom Kane, but I wish they had just rehashed audio clips of Donald Pleasance from the previous Halloween movies. Because immediately, as soon as he said like "I," I was like, "That's not Loomis." <laughs> it was weird. It was like it, it, I was getting a, a, a Malcolm McDowell vibe. But I knew that wasn't right either. I think that it's just, it's kind of an in-between voiceover between the two Loomises. <laughs> it's like, and it's just, it's like the I mean, end it does of, the job. It's the Return of the Jedi ending where they went back and put uh, Hayden Christensen in it. They just went back and had Malcolm McDowell record the voiceovers for this and just <laughs> dropped him in. But we see, obviously, Loomis in his dying days. And we know if you've watched the movies, you know this. He was obsessed with Michael and left behind his life's work. Um, and the most fascinating or i think the most uh, exposing headline clipping that is on his wall is that laurie strode died in a car wreck shortly after the events of halloween 2 fortunately that does not play into the movie if you've seen the poster the dvd cover or know anything about it you know she's in this movie but thankfully if you are going into it blind the movie immediately cuts to her so wipe your brow you're gonna be okay (laughs) the the newspaper clipping by the way Literally says that shortly after the events of Halloween 2. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I did want to cover real quick before we go ahead and just jump into uh, our mother-son relationship is, did you see the credit that Josh Hartnett got? Introducing. Introducing Josh Hartnett. It's it's amazing. He gets introducing Ella Cool J gets with, and then Justin Gordon-Levitt gets, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Did they, did they not give anything special to, uh, to Janet Lee? I think it was more this her role in it was supposed to be more of a wink and a nod type thing, whereas the three you had mentioned were I don't know actual parts of the movie <laughs> poised to be it people Josh Hartnett especially films in general you're lucky if you get one introducing and or with if you get two that's like that's when you cash out at the casino because your luck's too good getting all three. 
they call that in the industry the Hail Mary. And that's <laughs> that is where it's at. I don't understand why Josh Hartnett got an introducing credit because he had already made the faculty, which was his big coming out. But <laughs> I guess the idea is that because he is the heir to the Strode throne and Jamie Lee got the introducing credit, that's the only thing I could really piece together about that. Oh, so you're telling me that uh, if there had been a Halloween H3O, uh, he would have been the main character? I mean, he's not doing much else. So <laughs> I was mulling over here really where this fell in the Josh Hartnett experiment. And there was there was still a ways to go. This was at the beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, introducing. <laughs> just, but again, still the faculty had already come out. <laughs> that was just that was just a warm up. That was a a, a self topping. You know, this was the real like red carpet. The event. real McCoy. All right. So getting into it, on the other side of the country in Summer Glen, California, we we find that Lori Strode is very much alive and well, but she is now operating under the name uh, Carrie Tate. Was that the name she's going by? Yeah. Uh, do you think because this movie is just. It's just reference after reference and callback after callback. Uh, do you think that has anything to do with uh, Sharon Tate? I I don't know. I didn't think that far about it, but who who fucking knows? Carrie Tate is alive and well. She works as the headmistress at Hillcrest Academy, which is a private boarding school that uh, the aforementioned Josh Hartnett attends, who plays her son, uh, John Tate. They even put a red jacket on him to make sure you know that he is... James Dean, Devil Without a Cause, for a new generation. How do you feel about Josh Harnett in this movie? How do you feel about his character? Because I found him, and this is not a bad thing, but I found that he was kind of a dick. Oh, very much so. It, it was good because I, I knew that I was supposed to be rooting for him, and and I guess in the in the real sense, you know, you don't wish death on anybody, right? But uh, it was it was conflicting, which is good because I'm already on Lori's side. I, the moment I see Jamie Lee Curtis, I'm like, all right, she's my hero. I'm, whatever she says, I'm I'm behind her. And so I guess to have her have a kid, a son that was that she would have a a perfect relationship with would have been a little too much, a little too saccharine. I I don't need that much sweetness in my horror movies. So it's good to give her a a son that's that's kind of a douchebag. He he talks back to her all the time. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't take her PTSD seriously. The entire time I was thinking, man, I would never talk to my mother like that to begin with. <laughs> That's my mother not having gone through the trauma of experiencing Halloween 1 and 2. Uh, this guy, it's not even that he doesn't believe her. He knows that it happened. And he's just like, mom, get over it. <laughs> I'd say cavalier, but he's also 17. He says it like numerous times. It's... Almost like the the joke in Walk Hard where John C. Riley just consistently identifies how old he is. I think I'm doing all right for a 15-year-old with a wife and a kid. And that kind of feels like Josh Hartnett because he said, I'm 17, you know, two or three times throughout the course of it. But yeah, huge dick. But I think we want to paint him. Uh, that whole thing that was sexy with teen heartthrobs in the 90s is not caring. Hence his hair and just appearance in this movie. His untucked shirt. Oh, I already said state of earlier, but when they showed him with his, you know, 3X button up, just completely <laughs> billowing over his frame, I just said, mate, state of your fucking outfit. But the whole thing is the student body's going on a trip to Yosemite, I guess an overnight camping trip. He wants to go. Lori won't allow it because it. we are now at Halloween. And so the paranoia, I mean, she woke up from a nightmare to begin the day. So... 
she's having a hard time with it. And this first scene just between the two of them, though, is just filled with high level acting. And I think Jamie Lee didn't take it easy on the the newcomer, Josh Hartnett, and made him <laughs> up his game. And I think he fulfilled the task here. That's really why he got the introducing uh, credit. You know, they saw they saw the dailies and they're like, oh, wow, that, now he's acting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you saw him in another movie, but this is where you're introduced to him. At school, we see his buddy is young Robin Williams from Jumanji, which I know that guy has a <laughs> yes. name, but I'm sorry. He's just young Rob, Robin Williams from Jumanji. Yeah, he's, he's baby Alan Parrish. Uh, he's also, have you ever seen that movie? Uh, uh, the Ice Storm, Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver. He plays Elijah Wood's uh, brother in that movie. And oh, he okay. is, you know, it's, it, what are the odds? I, I watched this movie uh, and and I know this guy from two movies that couldn't be more different. <laughs> and all around the same, because, you know, it's kind of like he kind of disappeared, right? So he, he had this this cluster of, of big name movies. And then he, he was like, all right, I've done enough. <laughs> And faded off into the distance, like Michael Myers at the end of uh, Halloween 6. It was that Jake Gyllenhaal gif of him just, like, kissing and waving goodbye to the audience. He's just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could argue he peaked on this one because uh, his girlfriend is just way... He's out kicking his coverage, like you like to say. Oh, yeah. I mean, props to him. This movie was three years after Jumanji, and he looked exactly the same. Not an easy accomplishment. But yeah, his girlfriend, Sarah, played by Jody Lynn O'Keefe, who I wasn't very familiar with, but they were giving her some pretty solid uh, billing. Oh, she's in She's All That. That was her follow-up to this, which, of course, I know that was before your time here in the States, but that movie was <laughs> quite the archetype. I've seen She's All That, Freddie Prince, right? Yeah. That, it, that whole thing of uh, if you take a girl's glasses off, she might be hot underneath them, whereas it's, <laughs> it's kind of the inverse for me. It's all cyclical, Alex. Yeah. A All woman right. in glasses, I can get down with that. Freddie Prince Jr. ruined it for, for, for many people, but I saw the light as a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> Put him back on, I said. I- I'm sorry, Julio. I know we're in Contrarian's Corner, and it may be kind of going against the grain here, but I'm just going to say it. We get to the main event of this movie, and that is Molly Cartwell, played by Michelle Williams. I mean, obviously, in 1998, Michelle Williams was not what she is now. She was not the multiple-time Academy Award nominee. Or is it just for My Week with Marilyn? Wasn't she nominated for uh, that movie with Casey Affleck? She was. Manchester by the Sea. Yes. <laughs> a, a very similar movie to Halloween H2O. <laughs> oh. I mean, no, but here, she was already, I'm pretty sure, 98. That's that's uh, She was she was part of the Creek by then. So it, it was just a, a it, one-two punch of Halloween and Dawson's Creek already starting up her career. And of course, Dawson's Creek heavily intertwined with this movie because of the director. I'm not quite sure if that's where the relationship came from, but uh, it was there. And yes, to piggyback on that, I thought, but I didn't want to say it because I didn't know if it was going to sound stupid. She was nominated for Blue Valentine, uh, and she was also nominated for Brokeback Mountain. So four nominations, no victories yet, uh, becoming the female Tom Cruise, it would seem. And (laughs) she plays John Tate, Josh Hartnett's girlfriend in this movie. 
these four characters come together as they're all having trepidations or in uh, John's case are not allowed to go to this Yosemite trip. So they concoct this idea that, Hey, we're going to stay behind here at the dorms and we're going to have like our own party. We'll get some, some booze and we'll make some food in the cafeteria and it'll be a, a gay old time as the Flintstones would say. So they go about that as their plan. Meanwhile, running uh, parallel to this, Julio, I knew that you were going to love this because it's something you had called out in a couple of episodes so far. Halloween H2O has to feature the most, (laughs) the greatest, I should say, amount of Michael driving of any movie in the franchise. Uh, Yes. I love it, even though it starts making me look silly because, you know, a couple episodes ago, I was like, Michael Myers driving. What the hell? That's just so weird. And no, it turns out that if you watch all the Halloween movies, there's a lot of driving (laughs) done by Michael Myers. And Halloween kills next year. He's going to have a a stick shift and there's going to be a part where like he has to hit some insane like U-turn or I don't know. It's going to result in a Vin Diesel cameo is pretty much what I'm sure of. Yes, he has to drift. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) But this scene is one of the more terrifying we've covered so far. What happens is Michael, his car, he gets a flat tire, the car he stole from Langdon. Finally. Again, for your consideration, you have to understand that Michael is driving from Illinois to California. So (laughs) this is not an easy feat. Driving a mile wearing a mask that restricts your vision like that is definitely tough. So you're going to get tired. The shitty car you stole from this old woman is going to break down. It's natural. It happens. We're somewhere out in, it looks to be the Rockies, perhaps, because I do see it's very hilly and uh, there may be a mountain range in the background. This rest stop, uh, a beautiful countryside. You can at least take in that Michael was there to at least enjoy the scenes while he was on his ride. Uh, (laughs) Mother and daughter pull up and some fucking old stagecoach. Like, I don't know why this suburban mom had a, a vehicle like this, but that's here nor there. Michael they didn't have minivans back in 98. My, like when I was watching this, my thought was that he waited like, you know, those days when you have way too much time to play GTA and, uh, <laughs> only at certain hours in certain parts of the city are there certain cars. So you just kind of wait until the right time to go in and get it like a, a Diablo stallion or a Yardy Lobo. I just imagine Michael was just chilling and like a couple cars, like a Miata pulled up and he just shook his head. No. And then this one finally pulled up and it was go time. All jesting aside, what results is terrifying. This woman and her daughter need to use the restroom. So they, the women's restrooms locked. They go into the men's restroom. They both uh, are at, Uh, side-by-side stalls. Michael comes in and grabs the woman's purse. Uh, As he walks away, she goes to, obviously terrified because her little girl's in the next stall. She goes to Uh peer through the crack in the stall. And I don't know about to you, to me, this was the most genuinely scary moment in the movie. He just like looks back at her and then just kind of goes back on his way. Yeah. But it's also, we're carrying the weight of all the other Halloween movies we've watched. Right. So of course, We've seen the franchise cross some pretty uh, horrifying lines in Season of the Witch. Yeah. We know that kids are not safe in this franchise. It's happened already once. That means that it can happen again. And the 90s were wild. At the same time, the 90s were kind of endearing. So it all turns out to be for nothing. But all I kept thinking is funny. You, you thought of GTA. What I kept thinking was our discussion about uh, how long was Michael waiting for Joe Grizzly 
in Rob Zombie's Halloween. <laughs> Too, because this, this gave me the Joe Grizzly vibes, right? It's it's a bathroom. It's a bathroom stalls. He wants something from the person in the stall. Thankfully, this woman and her kid were nowhere near as confrontational as Joe Grizzly. So they just, they lose their car, but they keep their lives. Uh, but the entire time I thought, okay, all it's going to take is just one wrong move and Michael is going to decapitate both of them. So yeah, I agree. It was terrifying. Fortunately for the woman and her child, though, he ends up just stealing their, their car. He takes off and back on the road to Haddonfield. And I don't know what song would Two Princes by Spin Doctors <laughs> starts playing in the car radio. <laughs> back at the boarding school, we are introduced to the security guard that runs the roost there. Ronnie, played by LL Cool J, who is an aspiring writer. Every time we see him in his security booth, he's on the phone with his wife. They established that they did recently get married, basically using her as a test audience for his writing. I guess he wants to be like an erotic fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's talking about the melons. Oh, that's right. She, much like any viewing uh, audience members, thinking, it's hello, Cool J. Why the hell is he talking about all this shit? <laughs> She's like, what are you talking about? Just be LL Cool J. Yeah, it's uh, it's lip sync battles, LL Cool J. You, that's what you think of when you see LL Cool J now. You think of him and music. You think of him and, and, and literature, even if it's kind of smutty literature. It's it, That's not what you think of. The man, uh, I think, is uh, musician first, actor second, wannabe writer, I don't know, a distant hundredth. <laughs> Television host uh, would definitely be above that. Yes. It's still, it's meant to be humorous. It's supposed to be a joke. That's like a running joke, which has kind of like a weird, shocking payoff later on. So, uh, yeah, I was cool. I was down with it. Uh, I, was, I was happy that there was a black person in the cast. Get a little bit more insight into Lori, or in this case, Carrie's life. Uh, as a headmistress, we had mentioned earlier, her mom makes a really awesome cameo in this. Uh, Janet Lee plays her secretary, Miss Watson. And we were introduced to the fact that Lori, or Carrie, has uh, a man in her life. Uh, the counselor at the school, Will Brennan, played by Adam Arkin, who... that's The, the sexy Arkin. The, that's Alan Arkin's son, right? Yes, yeah. I always thought they were brothers, and then I actually looked it up tonight. <laughs> no, father and son. Old Alan was banging him out early. What this all leads to, this school day, we see you know the typical run-of-the-mill activities for a day at school, but uh, what ends up happening is these characters all kind of converge as Will takes Carrie out for a lunch. Uh, she is obviously kind of on edge, and he wants to understand why, and she's just not ready to tell him. Uh, this is the first um, insights or reveal, would be a better term, that we get into um, Lori's would you call, I guess it would be a full-on drinking problem. Yeah. I remember if it's right before this scene or right after that Josh Harden actually calls her a functioning alcoholic. But yeah, this is this is very much, it's right there on screen. And and it's part of her Oscar clip. I, I Do you have a different uh, moment for her Oscar clip? Because I think this one nails it. I guess not. Uh, yeah, later on, it's just more kind of action and fiery. But uh, is this when they're in the diner and she's having the glass of wine? Right, but she, you know, because they're talking and they're kind of joking around and then she starts trying to talk to him and then she, she kind of breaks up and has to pull back, stop herself from crying and then talks a little more but doesn't quite open up. It's just the myriad of emotions going through uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in this scene. It's just impressive and just she just 
puts everybody else to shame. And this is a pretty strong cast, but the she just puts on a masterclass of acting in, I don't know, five minutes, and it just reverberates throughout the entire series. <laughs> Which I think, you know, it's good, because I think this is the moment where she steps up and uh, you see the Lori character fill up the void left by Dr. Loomis. We don't have Donald Pleasance anymore uh, carrying the franchise with all his uh, his neuroses and just his obsession and all that stuff. So so now it's just up to Lori. And so it's up to Lori to become a more interesting character than she's been so far. And, uh, and it's great because in a way... Uh, this movie, one of my favorite things about it is just that it. this movie is about uh, Lori's journey sort of to become obsessed in the same way that Loomis did. It, it, it took Loomis several movies to kind of just go crazy. And Lori takes a, a similar journey in one movie that's less than 90 minutes long. You mentioned the Oscar clip, and that's fascinating because I think uh, we're approaching the best picture clip here very shortly because... What also happens for the lunchtime hour at school is uh, John, Josh Hartnett, is actually able to... Josh Hartnett, John. So if I interchange Josh and John, just stick with me here. You guys know what I'm talking about. So what runs side by side with this lunch hour is uh, John Tate is able to convince uh, his buddy, Ronnie, L.O. Cool J, the security guard, hey, just have your back turned because we want to leave because it's obviously, it's a, it's a boarding school. You can't just come and go as you please. It's But it, they want to go out for lunch and he wants to get something for his girlfriend, uh, Molly, for the evening. So him and young Robin Williams go to hit the town and intersect with Jamie Lee Curtis after she's had two pretty stout glasses of Chardonnay. And to me, this was like, this was the best picture clip. A mother-son version of that famous fight from uh, a marriage story. It's just them like <laughs> yelling at each other about the overbearing nature of parenthood. And, you know, I'm trying to do the best thing for you. And, you know, maybe not the best picture clip overall, but I, it definitely you'd have to give this for Josh Hartnett's Oscar clip. Yes. I mean, Hartnett's voice breaks at some point during the scene. And they just kept rolling. <laughs> None of that bullshit. Oh no, cut! Let me go again. I, 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 that was not planned. No, it, he just kept. He let the raw emotion overtake him and, and just go. Uh, my favorite part of this though is that I don't know if you noticed, Alex. There is a they're arguing and you know it's a it's a basically they're cutting between you know over the shoulder shot. So you see Jamie Lee Curtis and you see Josh Harnett. So in the Jamie Lee Curtis shot, well, she's screaming at Josh Harnett. Josh Harnett screaming back. In the background, there is a couple that wanders into the shot. It, and uh, and then you see the girl kind of react to it like what the fuck is going on <laughs> this fight and then she she kind of like walks away and gets into her car and it just felt so real uh there is no way that that was a real person i mean that's just the the assistant director was you know he placed some extras there and told him to act that way and it just it makes it all so believable because they're having a big blowout in the middle of the street uh, in the middle of the day you, you would have a lot of uh, passersby going on so uh yeah, I really like that detail. Yeah, and I was about to say there's the woman in the background and then also a couple like walks around them at one point. Yes, yeah, It's yeah, like, yeah. come on, Lois, we got to keep moving. One of them probably has a gun. Let's go. But of well, course, he's still, this is true. California, it'd probably be flax seeds or something they were throwing at each other. Uh, <laughs> they head back to campus because at the end of the day, she's still his mother and he eventually kowtows to her. They get back to campus and she gives LL Cool J the scorned look the mother's shame look pretty much and <laughs> they pull in 
unbeknownst to them, behind them, Michael Myers, his nationwide, his Forrest Gump trek has ended as he's made it from the vast cornfields of Chicago to the uh, massive overpasses of California. And he just waits for his moment. So this is the point in the movie that lays on the thickest, the romance between Michelle Williams and Josh Hartnett. And he sets up uh, somewhere in like the basement of this building, an area for them to have dinner at that night, uh, a little Halloween setting and a bunch of candles. And then they kind of have these loving, flirtatious looks back and forth in class. And it leads to the class being dismissed for the day. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis tells everyone, you know, have fun. Um, we get the extremely prophetic and analogous story of Frankenstein uh, or Frankenstein, excuse me, in her class before she dismisses them, where Michelle Williams explains that it's just you have to face the monster head on. And, you know, Jamie yeah. Lee has like this moment of realization or this uh, knowing look on her face. They knew uh, they knew what kind of talent they had on Michelle Williams. So they're like, if somebody's going to spell out the theme of the movie, we have to give it to this girl. We're going to give her the exposition and then just tell her, you know, kind of make it your own. Uh, <laughs> Jamie Lee dismisses the class. Everyone's off to Yosemite. But this is where I wouldn't say maternal instinct or just uh, sometimes, I, I guess, as parents, you kind of just have to throw in the towel when you know you, you're beat or, you know, you're not doing the right thing. Because this is where she signs over permission for Josh Hartnett to go to Yosemite, which it turns out to be for not because he doesn't go anyway. Right, he doesn't really want to go anymore because his his girlfriend and his buddies are are staying behind. Which having been can't in, win. <laughs> having been in high school and having a girl pay attention to you, I could say, yeah, I would probably do the same thing. So he gets his permission slip, but he just doesn't get on the bus, and nor does Molly, Charlie, or Sarah. They're gonna stay behind and have this little sleepover, this uh, party. Jamie Lee watches the buses take off. She goes to head home. We get this scene between her and her mother, uh, Janet Lee, Norma Watson, where she pretty much tells her, you know, I don't like seeing you like this. You know, she pretty much implies she needs to get help or, you know, she's there if she needs her type thing. It's just kind of more of a, hey, you're not alone in this. But it's also just basically a, a, a present, a gift to moviegoers that know their film history and just the the, the relations. Because she says, Janet Lee has the moment where she's like, this is me being maternal or something. And she's literally speaking to her daughter in real yeah. life. So, of course, there's that. But then my favorite part of the movie, and this is just has nothing to do with Halloween at all. But I just thought it was great that as she's walking away, Janet Lee is walking away, going to her car. And the theme for Psycho plays for maybe two seconds. Did you catch that? I did not. It's amazing. I rewind it. I was like, did I hear that right? Did I hear that? And yeah, it is. It's just brief because then, you know, she turns and she says one more thing and then it plays just the, the regular uh, score that's supposed to be scary. But when she's walking to her car, it's the, it's the psycho theme. And that was great. And it it's just so emblematic of what this movie is about, what this movie does best, which is this movie is just so excited that it exists. The enthusiasm... <laughs> It, it, that just comes out of every frame of this movie. Uh, they're just so happy that they're getting to make a Halloween movie with Jamie Lee Curtis, with Janet Lee, with introducing Josh Hartnett. <laughs> just <laughs> everything. Every little scene has like a callback or has, you know, just kind of like a wink for people that have been watching. It's like, yeah, sure, we'll put like Loomis' photograph here. And yeah, we'll come up with a new... Uh, 
voiceover that explains something in <laughs> I forgot and, the, you know, they had Loomis the fucking Donald Pleasant's headshot in an eight by ten frame at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember when uh when Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back, you know, she's driving back Josh Harnett and, and young Robin Williams and she's uh she yells at LA Cool J for doing a shitty job. And then she's driving back, LA Cool J uh mutters psycho Yes, and it was like that's right before you know a couple scenes before uh, we have the big Janet Lee scene. So it's just sometimes I think that you can tell the filmmakers were having fun on set, and that doesn't translate to the movie being fun. But sometimes it does, and I think in this case that happened. You had the people behind the camera, and obviously the people in front of it were having a blast making a Halloween movie, and uh, and it comes through. When you're watching the movie, I don't know, you know, obviously you don't get a lot of these little things if you're not familiar with the series, uh, if you know who Janet Lee was, but, uh, but I also don't think that that would detract from the experience, right? Uh, at the same time, I think that a lot of people watching Halloween H2O were people that, that would catch that were horror buffs. So that, that was cool. I, I really appreciate that aspect of the filmmaking. And I appreciate in this scene with uh, Janet Lee and Jamie Lee, when she first approaches her, it startles her and Jamie Lee, ah! And mm-hmm. uh, did you catch what uh, Norma Watson said to her? Did he say, uh, it's Halloween, everybody's allowed one good scare or she something? She harkens back to Sheriff Brackett and uses his line from the original Halloween. Would not. Oh, be- I didn't recognize it. Yeah, yeah. It would not be the, the first line of dialogue, uh, or it would not be the last line of dialogue, I should say, recycled from the original Halloween, and for good cause. Back at... Miss Carrie Tate's home. She has a bottle of vodka and she's downing it like she's in (laughs) the metal years, the decline of Western civilization. And she's just going to town. But I guess she's kind of making the most of her night, too, because her boyfriend's coming over and they're going to have a a night together. Back at the boarding school, it's pretty much what they said it was going to be. They're having a party. They got some some drinks. Uh, They're in the school cafeteria just making all kinds of food. Uh, they pretty much it's you know risky business style. Young Robin Williams, he talks a big game. He talks like they have sex all the time. But I didn't buy it. <laughs> she's like a foot taller than him. If they are, it's like one of those weird fetish type things where she's like you know military pressing him over her head. <laughs> I don't know. We don't because we don't get much time to know them. We know at this point Michael's arrived at the school because the intelligence of this Michael is definitely a much higher one because he waits. Till all the school buses leave and then he returns back. So he's pretty much just been wandering the property for a few hours, just waiting for his moment to strike. At Lori's home, though, she finally fesses up and explains to Will, her boyfriend, who she is, that she's Lori Strode. And uh, he knows the story of Michael Myers. I think he even says something like, who doesn't know that story? That was my thought. Who doesn't? Uh, she, she really sets the mood for uh, a night of either amazing mind-blowing sex or just awkward silence after this revelation because it's not like she hits him with that over dinner they're in the process of making out he's trying to take her clothes off and that's where she decides to reveal her backstory he thinks she's kidding at first because he's like all right Uh we'll take your clothes off while she's explaining this though like i mentioned he he didn't come home i think he came on vacation He's, he's a long way, you know, they're not in Kansas anymore, and he arrives in a very violent fashion. We see Michael back at Hillcrest Academy, and his first victim, sadly, is young Robin Williams. We barely knew ye. And Julio, what is the first thing you notice about Michael Myers here in this first full shot we see of him? Uh, 
Oh, is this going to be about the mask, you and your obsession with the many different masks of Michael Myers? Yes, it is about the mask, Julio. In Halloween, all <laughs> things are about the mask. Uh, in the second portion of this podcast, we'll get a bit further into it, but this would be the first appearance of a CG Michael Myers mask. Again, you know, we were two years shy here of uh, going to the OO, but definitely a Michael for the, the new millennium with a computer-generated goddamn mask. Young Robin Williams, though, we don't quite see his fate, but we come to find out pretty quickly he got his throat slit. Oh, dude, this scene, though, it was uh, talk about just teasing you with with awesomeness because he does that thing. Have you ever dropped anything into the uh, trash disposal and reached down to, to grab it? Oh, yeah, it's terrifying. Yes, in this this sequence capitalizes on that i think that probably anybody that's ever done the dishes has done that and and yeah i can relate to the whole because he drops his uh a bottle opener and then he he has to reach down to grab it from inside the trash disposal and he keeps looking at the at the f- switch that turns it on and we know that michael myers is in the room with him mm-hmm. so of course we just keep waiting for that to happen it never does. It's like the scene in the in the bathrooms with the mom and the, and her daughter. It's just about the fear of what might happen. And then even if it doesn't happen, you still went through that that terror of what could have happened. And then of course he gets killed anyway. But uh yeah, I thought that whole thing with the with trash disposal was amazing. Yeah, he turns around and just looks at Michael and he's like, "Hi." <laughs> And his girlfriend, Sarah, comes back in to check on him. And he's been like his dead body's been loaded into like a it's not a freight elevator. It's not a laundry chute. It's it's a dumbwaiter. There you go. There you go. So she sees him in there, turns around. Michael's there. She loads herself in, hits the up button. My Michael, uh, we get this awesome shot of him like sticking his head into the shaft and like looking up and being <laughs> like, what is this thing? I've never seen this before at Smith's Grove. <laughs> Tries to sever the rope. The woman, Sarah, was he stabbed her in the leg. This is a much smarter Michael. He stabs multiple people in the leg because he basically knows you can't run forever if I've wounded you that badly. And that's uh-huh. exactly what happens here. Not only is he stab her in the leg, as she's trying to exit, when he slices the rope, the entire weight of the crate comes down on her leg. And uh, to me, it's like the grossest visual effect in this because it's like a compound fracture on her leg. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it doesn't kill her. I mean, she just now she's dragging herself. I think she gets it the worst out of everybody, or at least we get to see her because, you know, young Robin Williams, we didn't see him die. We just found his body. And everybody else, I'm thinking, you know, mm, even Joseph Gordon Levitt, you know, we just saw the aftermath. Mm-hmm. But with her, we actually see her get stabbed uh, or, you know, her leg gets slashed. Then we see her leg get broken by the dumbwaiter. And then uh, in a little bit, we'll see her just actually get murdered by Michael Myers. So uh, I guess, you know, sucks to be the the popular girl that's not Michelle Williams. He eventually finds her, Michael, that is, and stabs her a few times. Uh, this whole ruckus has caught the attention of Molly and John as they are listening to Creed in a very romantic setting. Uh, <laughs> candlelit dinner, cuddled up on the couch, but they realize, you know, something there's some something going on out there. They immediately surmise at them trying to play a prank on him. Go upstairs. Open um, what looks to be a closet of some sort, maybe a, a pantry. They turn on a light, and it's so quick, but it looks like what Michael had done with this woman is hang her from the light string. And I don't know if he fed the light through her, but it looks like she's been hollowed out to some extent. Yeah, we're back to uh, Michael Myers's arts and crafts. <laughs> uh, 
much welcome. Uh, I, I, I like that aspect of Michael Myers. I like when he, he gets to put on a display. I know it comes and goes throughout the series, but that's that's something that I find myself enjoying more and more every time. But they turn on the lights and, you know, we get uh, – it was one of the most famous promotional stills of the movie, the reaction shot of Michelle Williams and Josh Hartnett with their whole, oh, shit. They cross paths with Michael. Like I said, this is a smart Michael, so he immediately stabs Josh Hartnett in the leg. Michelle Williams getting her heroiness moment of uh, just decking him in the face with a rock. As they take off running, they get back to the dorms. Would not be a horror movie of any sort if we didn't get one woman fumbling with keys to try to get back into a door. <laughs> and so Michelle Williams with like the janitor ring of keys to every fucking lock in the entire campus. She fumbles through them and finally gets in. But wouldn't you know it when she does, she drops them. And <laughs> Julio, if you had any you know issues with Michael driving a car. How did you feel about Michael operating a key ring? Uh, it's not on four wheels and not, not as bad. That, that, that's fine. I'm okay with that. He's like multitasking Michael- though because he's trying to find out what key it is. But then because it's a gate, he's got his other hand with the knife through just like slashing in the air. Just like, well, I'll get you eventually. You just wait. Yeah. No, I'm okay with that. That that part is uh, it's fine. My It could also be that uh, as we're doing these series, I just might... My conception of Michael Myers has started to change slowly, and I'm okay with seeing him doing mundane things. The car is still a leap too far, but seeing him fumble with keys at this point, I'm just sure, why not? It's it's funny because in the movies that we've covered, he's been demystified so much, right? I guess once you've seen him in, in that robe, being part of that ceremony at the end of Curse of Michael Myers, just anything goes. We've come so far with him already. It, it's only natural. And he eventually finds the key while Jamie Lee, Laurie Strode, Carrie Tate, she shows up to save the day, lets Molly and John back into the dorm. And then we get what is easily the most iconic shot of this movie and one of the most overused promotional stills from a horror movie ever where the circular window separates Michael and Laurie and they are once again face to face. She is not as quick a draw as Dr. Loomis, though, because by the time that she pulls out her gun to shoot him through that window, he's gone. Oh, no. Man, Sam would have already had the gun out. Like, he <laughs> he would take no chances. And, yeah, she's got it holstered in her pants. And uh, just she didn't learn anything from that 20 years prior where Loomis just unloaded. He he shot eight <laughs> times in a, in a gun that carried six bullets. And she is not ready yet. As soon as she gets her gun out, of course, the shape is gone. Uh, I specifically remember the promotional still of this, of them face-to-face. Fox News and their infinite idiocy used um, that image on a Friday the 13th that the stock market was going down. This was maybe three, four, five years ago. And that was like the header picture. And I was on the bus home from work, and I still remember how irrationally angry I got by that. I was just like, did, white, did, white people are the fucking worst, and they ruin everything, is what I kept thinking. Did they caption it, uh, what a nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> <laughs> it said, don't fear Friday the 13th, and it had this fucking picture of Michael Myers, but yeah, that would have been great. Um, uh, yeah, what a nightmare. Don't fear Friday the 13th for this chainsaw <laughs> won't massacre the stock market. It's a fucking picture of fucking Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. Anyway, we mentioned this iconic shot of the movie, and in most movies, it would be you would have to digest this for a while. It's something that it comes at you, and you're like, holy shit, this is heavy. 
But this movie gives you no time to breathe because they get in to the dorm and Lori has the gun. Will comes up and takes it and he's freaking out. He's like, who was that? She's like, that was him. They see a shadowy figure coming around the corner. Will takes the gun and just unloads it. And unfortunately, he didn't do his due diligence and really study who he was shooting at (laughs) as he just took out Ronnie, L.O. Cool J, who unfortunately was wrong place, wrong time. Dude, I think this was the moment where I got the most anxious during the movie <laughs> because I instantly, I knew that this this was not, it's a horror movie, right? It's not going to, the repercussions of Arkin's actions, we're not going to deal with them. <laughs> but still, I couldn't help as they go over there and they see Ellie Cool J lying on the floor, blood pouring out of his head. I was just instantly picturing what happens after the movie ends the or the offshoot where an Arkin is just has to explain his actions. It's like, dude, you shot the one black character in the movie. What the hell? It just seemed like such a PR nightmare that obviously when a few seconds later, Michael murdered him, I was like, all right, well, what a relief. We'll have to deal with that. The weight of the situation doesn't have much time to set in on him. He's just like, oh God, I killed this guy. And then Michael comes out and sticks this knife completely through him and up into the air. He does the classic slasher thing of blood pouring out of his mouth (laughs) as he's just kind of dangling from a knife. So from there, the movie, the chase is on. It just becomes the shape is after Laurie, John, and Molly. Laurie, of course, goes into fight or flight mode here. She hides the two kids. She lures Michael away, hits him in the head with a fucking... A fire extinguisher to kind of knock him out and it gives them enough time to escape in a vehicle which looked to be a gmc jimmy of some sort again all to, all sorts of nostalgia in this movie <laughs> so we think it's they're gonna get away they could potentially just trap michael there like uh the tale of Mowgli's island just trap the the outcast there and leave him be and they can just function on their own but they get to the gate and Lori decides, no, this is where I face my fear and my destiny head on. And did you catch the the recycled line from the original one here? Uh, no. I mean, I've, I've my note just says she locks herself in with the monster. <laughs> she, Molly, uh, Michelle Williams says, no, we're not going to go without you. And she tells them exactly what she told uh, uh, the two kids she babysat in the original Halloween. She said, do as I say now. And so they <laughs> nice. take off. They're going to go summon the popo. And Lori goes back to campus and she doesn't she just scream like, Michael, she does a Tom Sizemore. I'm coming to get (laughs) you. She goes back. She's roaming the halls looking for him. We get CrossFit Michael who lowers himself from a beam with one arm. (laughs) Yes. Amazing. (laughs) Absolutely absurd. The core strength of this man. (laughs) And. It's nothing remarkable, but it's just more of a suspense-filled version of their cat and mouse. You know, in the original Halloween, their cat and mouse game lasts maybe 40 seconds. And <laughs> here, you know, we get a, a drawn-out, like a throwdown, like a maze of sorts. that She's hiding under tables, and he's having to flip them over to kind of locate. It's... um. To me, this scene where, you, you know what I'm talking about, where he's flipping over the tables and the chairs looking for her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was where Rob Zombie started taking notes about how his movie was going to end with uh, <laughs> uh, Michael taking out the boards and the ceiling. So it, it just it works to add suspense to it. Yeah, but also I, I think that something that we might or, or just an audience might take for granted these days is just that, oh, well, of course it's Jamie Lee Curtis and of course she's kicking ass and being resourceful and whatever, but... In the in the scope of the franchise, this is really the first time we're seeing Laurie 
actually fight back. I mean, I know that she has her moments in Halloween 2 uh, towards the end, but for the most part, and I think that's what defines her her uh, psychological situation in this movie, she's being a victim and she's being afraid of him. And this is just uh, her finally facing off against him in a physical way. It reminded me of all things. It reminded me of the, the, the end of the first Spider-Man movie, the first Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi movie, uh-huh. where uh, Tobey Maguire is fighting the Green Goblin. He's getting his ass kicked, but he's still putting up a fight. And, and then he wins in the end. And this is kind of how I felt here because Laurie is not winning the fight. She's on the losing end through most of it. But she keeps getting up. She keeps like trying something else. She throws like 20 knives at him. <laughs> and... You know, she she hasn't hit him once, but at least, but you can't help but admire the fact that she's not cowering, she's not falling apart, she's just she keeps fighting uh, until eventually, you know, she gets the best of him. Yeah, one hundred percent. She knows that she's not a trained killer and not a trained fighter, so she's literally just got to throw whatever she can at him, which includes a box full of knives and uh, you know anything else she can get her hands on. It eventually leads to grappling exchange, but she does uh, get a big honking knife. And is able to stab him enough times that knocks him off a balcony wherever they are. And he goes crashing through uh, one of the tables that they had previously been brawling around. Absolutely a Japanese table. Any wrestling fans know those Japanese tables do not give it all. And dude hit this just, and it didn't break. It was not one of those wimpy WF tables that just break on impact. He 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 took the brunt of this. And she goes down to, you know, in a certain aspect, finish the job. She's just kind of looking at him and... It's Michael. Never, you know he's not gone. So she goes to raise the knife and give him the the kill the kill shot, the the final blow. Not unlike the end of Metal Gear Solid Three, where the game makes you kill Big Boss. And right as she <laughs> pulls the knife up, LL Cool J, he lived. Adam Arkin, lived. Adam Arkin will not be slandered in the press uh, following <laughs> this incident. LL Cool J lives, and I to speak to his character being the only one with any compassion. He just grabs her and he's like. Yeah, you and your boyfriend almost just killed me on accident just because I was walking. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to save you from any potential trauma you'll do to yourself. And I'm also going to save this guy from being completely, you know, just gutted inside out. He just grabs her and he's like, no, he's dead. He's dead. Was this the biggest surprise of the movie? The fact that he showed up? Because the movie tried to trick us into thinking that he was dead. It looked He looked really dead. Having only seen this once before, I remembered him getting shot i didn't remember him coming back so i just went yeah when he showed back up on screen i was happy to see ll again i was happy and i was afraid that we were going to go into the typical uh he stops her from killing him that they turn while they while their backs are to michael michael gets up and of course ll cool j bites it because you know he was just too good but thankfully we didn't go that way no we do not as the movie ends with quite the uh, spiral into darkness, we mm-hmm. see them loading Michael. They put him in a body bag. They zip him up with his goddamn mask on because, you know, <laughs> why not at this point? And they load him in the back of a van. That's not good enough for Lori. She grabs the emergency fire axe that she had been wielding previously. And then she also goes up, takes a police officer's gun and points him out and says, get back, get back. Takes this van. That She's has, gone full Loomis. She has. And she will not rest until she finishes, you know, her destiny, which is quickly approaching. She takes the van that has Michael in it. She goes driving down the hillside. Uh, She just keeps waiting and waiting and waiting. And eventually he wakes up, uh, tries to grab her by the throat. She slams on the brakes. He goes flying through the windshield, 
She wakes for him to wake up again, hits him with the van. They go tumbling down a hill. Uh, once they hit the bottom, she gets out. She's stumbling, mumbling, limping her way over to Michael, who's trapped between the van and a tree. And did you catch when she calls out to him? She says, Michael, he makes sure that he's still wearing his mask. Yes. Yeah. He touched his. I couldn't tell if he was fixing his hair or if he was, you know, making sure that he had the mask on. He's got (laughs) either one would work. He's got the really emotive eyes like, oh, she knows who I am. Yeah, no shit, Uh asshole. And she just kind of looks at him. He reaches out his hand as they are brother and sister. Do they do have that kinship? And she reaches back out and they interlock fingers for just a moment. But she realizes she can't. She has to finish the job. And she cuts his fucking head off just with one swing of an axe, takes that thing clean off. And as she does, the Halloween theme kicks in, the head rolls, and then I I've mentioned all these throwbacks to the original. Did you catch the significance of the ending here? Of her cutting his head off? The, well, to me, it was that she finally learned. That was <laughs> that's probably the, the the greatest thing for the Lori character is that we started with. Uh, you might remember if you listened to our Halloween episode how frustrated I was that she. Uh, she just didn't seem to recognize the very basic horror tropes of, oh, if he's not dead. Of course he's not dead. Don't turn around. In this case, she knew 100% that he was not dead. And she made sure that he was not getting up. So, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's not what you meant. No, I was more referring to how the the Halloween theme begins to play. And we hear her heavy breathing over that audio track. Mm. And then cut to her and her heavy breathing. And then like a breath of relief. And then we go to the credits. Creed just starts singing about life in Haddonfield. My only misgiving about this ending, I really wish that as they were interlocking fingers or whatever, that's when Michael needed to go, hey, boo, (laughs) (laughs) throw us years into the future. Oh, man. Just interlocking everything else, not just the fingers, but interlocking the movies all together. O-Town that had the song, and I swear... I can't remember who it was, but that would have been perfect for this scene here. I mean, I could have used a title card that been like, John Tate died of staph infection in his wound three weeks later. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I want to know how... That's my last note. Uh, Lori Strode has a lot of explaining to do. And Michelle Williams. Fortunately, she she went on to better, bigger and better things. Uh, she, she made it all right. But yeah, there's a lot of cleaning up to do. I just imagine because, you know, social media didn't exist then and those kids are camping. So there's really not much phone communication. I just imagine they get back to the school and there's all this blood and these bodies everywhere because it's still an active crime scene. Uh, (laughs) They're asking, but where is, uh, you know, the counselor? Uh, What happened? Where's Will? Uh, (laughs) They completely forget about young Robin Williams. And so they just open up that. (laughs) that lift and his body's just decomposing in there (laughs) there's a lot that's left unexplained i mean as as you should when you're doing uh this sort of movie it's you need to tie up every single loose end just leave us wanting more leave us wondering what happened my last note just all caps dead (laughs) how does michael myers come back from a decapitation do you know no i haven't watched resurrection told you cbs didn't have it (laughs) the way it is explained in resurrection the way he came back was at some point when he's being loaded onto that gurney by the orderlies and you know the ambulance driver and whatnot uh he replaces one of the orderlies with his body so he like (laughs) puts the mask and jumpsuit on some random guy and then he just kind of wanders out of scene 
not at all explaining why the guy still tries to attack Jamie Lee Curtis when he comes to. Uh, but what we come to find out is somewhat of no consequence got decapitated. It wasn't really Michael at all. So that's the next movie. This resurrection opened with Jamie Lee Curtis in prison. She's like in a mental institution and she dies like in the first, I think she's in the first 10 minutes of the movie. She, um, Michael like throws her off a building. If I remember correctly, like the roof of the mental institution. And, Oh, I think she says like, I love you. Or she says like, goodbye, Michael. And she like kisses the mask. (laughs) And then the movie somehow gets worse from there. Much, much worse. (laughs) But Uh, resurrection, that's about the extent of its coverage here on Haddonfield nights. We want to get back to the feature attraction here. And that is Halloween H2O. And I think it's just about time for us to move it over to real talk. Julio. Yeah. Let's go to real talk. Come on. I'll drive you back. You know what? Charlie, here. Go get in the car. I'll be right there. What the fuck do you think you're doing? Mom, I'm really uncomfortable with you saying that Well, word. then don't put me in the position, John. Do you know what day it is? Of all the days for you to pull this shit, what do you think you can do? Just wander around town? I don't ask you for very much. Just give me one Mom, day. I've given you 17 years. And I need you to be responsible. Do you know what that means? Responsible. Don't talk to me about responsible, I Mom. I just need this one Mom, thing. Mom, I am not responsible for you. That's it. That's enough. I can't take it, Mom. He's dead. Michael Myers is dead. What do you want me to say? That it's over? We should try to get on with some attempt at a happy existence, Mom. Because all the shit that's going on in your head is leaking out on me, and I can't take it anymore. You told me yourself you watched him burn. I didn't exactly stay to see his ashes. 20 years. 20 years. Don't you think he would have shown up by now? And I am recording for Real Talk for Halloween H2O, 20 years later. Halloween H2O, 20 years later, released on August 5th of 1998. Of course, the summer movie. Hey, there you go. That's what it has in common with uh, Roberto Zombarelli's because that had a summer release as well. A budget of $17 million with a box office return of $75 million. Definitely made some bank for Dimension Film and the Weinsteins, directed by Steve Miner, who, of course, for myself, of notoriety, directed Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3 as well. Uh-huh. Uh, they brought a pro. What, what else did he do? Forever Young, Lake Placid, Day of the Dead, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, and, of course, the 1986 film Soul Man. Are you familiar with Soul Man, Julio? Is that uh, Eddie Murphy? It is not. C. Thomas Howell movie in which he plays a white guy who... Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how like it's still accessible. Like, you know, you can make some shit disappear. The legend <laughs> about like Jennifer Aniston's nude picture she took before she became famous that she made disappear. You can make some things disappear and that movie is one of them. So it's like that, uh, that Disney movie was, is it? No, it's not call of the wild. What, what Song is of the it? South. Song of the South. There you go. Exactly. 
with the uh, Soul Man, the only people that should own it are should be weirdos that just buy like really shitty bootleg versions of it, like Song of the South. <laughs> to to even be fair, Song of the South, uh, uh, that dude won Academy Award for it, so. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's in the award zeitgeist, uh, the it's awards canon. Time. And a different time it was in 1998 for Halloween H2O. Julio, I have a question for you. Yes. Could you tell that this movie was made right after Scream came out by the same studio that made Scream? Uh, yeah, you know, I hadn't really, to be completely honest, I hadn't really made the connection, even though it is very obvious, uh, until I started uh, looking for quotes after I'd seen the movie, after I finished the movie, and uh, uh, you know, maybe twenty five percent of the of the Rotten Tomatoes quotes mentioned Kevin Williamson and Scream, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It, it's got that vibe. So he just kind of came up with the story. He didn't write the screenplay, but yeah, uh, we'll get over to your quotes in just a minute. But basically, the the foundation of this was that Halloween Seven was going to be a direct to video release. Because uh, oh. that's how bad Halloween Six did. Um, some of the original ideas for the story for this movie are fucking awesome. Like one of them was like Michael was locked up uh, in like a maximum security prison, and there were murders just like his in Haddonfield by like this magician that was obsessed with him. <laughs> it it sounded like it sounded like a direct-to-video movie, but definitely sounded pretty interesting. That being said. The two main things that got it back to a theatrical release, obviously Jamie Lee Curtis coming on board and then to Kevin Williamson uh, writing the story for it. Steve Miner uh, did some work on Dawson's Creek, if I remember correctly, and that's kind of how he came into the fray for it. So it was all kind of, um, yeah, he was a producer and director on it. It was kind of a perfect storm of what they wanted for that. But of course, they just turned it into a, a screen movie. Uh <laughs> <laughs> with some pretty people in it. So, uh, like, even if you hadn't told me, Alex, already uh, how you feel about this movie, I think it's pretty obvious. Yes, this is not a good movie. Uh, the fact that it is higher on Rotten Tomatoes than four is absolutely ridiculous. But uh, it was also, it cast a much wider net than Halloween 4 did. Yeah. So, before we just get into it, let's just go ahead and see. It was 52%. So like we said in the first portion, that means about every other person was saying, yeah, or nah. So what? Uh, who liked it? What were they saying about this positively? I uh, got a bunch of uh, fresh red tomatoes from Rotten Tomatoes. Starting with Matthew Lucas from From the Front Row, who says, This one's got what made the original film so special, and it reckons with history in a way that remains a serious highlight, even if it's no longer official canon. To give him credit, I think that maybe up to this point, uh, right now it just seems uh, it pales in comparison to what to the depiction of Lori that we will see in next episode, right? But I think that he's mm-hmm. right in the when it says that it reckons with history in a way that the series hadn't done, at least as far as Lori is concerned. So I see where he's coming from. Then we have Michael Dequina from TheMovieReport.com who says. Cinema's most famous scream queen is back, louder than ever, but now infused with strong dose of girl, make that girl power. <laughs> okay. Girl. 
don't know what that means. Cynthia Fuse from the Philadelphia City Paper says, The showdown is grueling, long, with too many climaxes and improbable events, but Lori's up for it. And that's what you love about her. She does not quit. She's bound and determined to decapitate his ass. Girl power. And then finally, this one, just because it's funny. Uh, Judith Egerton from the Courier Journal, Louisville, Kentucky, says, The selfish pea brains who brought their bright-eyed infant to this violent horror movie deserve a private, late-night visit from the uncompromising Michael Myers. But what about the movie, Judith? Tell us about the movie, Alex. What about the movie? Well, there were four masks used. That's one problem. Um... <laughs> Uh, I'm actually kind of gobsmacked and uh, frankly almost left speechless with how much I disliked this movie. I had, I, as I told Julio and as we made allusion to in the first portion, I had seen this movie once in my life and it was when I was in high school and my high school girlfriend's parents were out of town. So we were going to rent a movie and watch it at her place. So I just had like a very vague recollection of what happened. I remember LL Cool J getting shot. I remember Michael getting decapitated. Like um, until we had gotten back into this for doing this uh, project, Haddonfield Nights, I completely forgot Michelle Williams was in it. I knew Josh Hartnett was in it. But, you know, my passion for Halloween is one, two, four. And I the things that are fascinating to discuss about five and six. Uh, H2O and Resurrection – have never made any impact on me. And now I'm understanding why. I mean, I really dislike Resurrection. And while this isn't as bad as Resurrection, it's it maybe not really be that bad of a horror movie, but it's a terrible Halloween movie. They tried to make Scream with Michael Myers is <laughs> what they did. And uh, the score is god-awful. It's a Scream score. The, the guy who originally did the score for it, um, his name was John Ottman, I want to say. Uh, and I remember from the Halloween 25 Years of Terror documentary, him talking about pretty much just at the last minute, I guess the Weinsteins didn't like his soundtrack, so they brought in Marco Beltrami, Beltrami who did the score for Scream and basically had him just throw some shit together. And I think they might have even used some like stuff that was cut from the Scream score. And... <laughs> I know you're not as big of a horror nerd as I am. So those things, maybe not, they not, maybe they don't stick out to you like they do to me, but like watching this movie and the whole thing of Joseph Gordon Levitt being the Drew Barrymore in this of Mm -hmm. he's like the name actor that's in the first scene, but immediately gets killed. Yeah. Rewatching it now. I really did not like this through no fault of like Jamie Lee Curtis is good. And I think this movie almost in spite of itself does tackle a really interesting aspect to her character with like the, you yep. know, the alcoholism. And um, I don't want to go too deep into that. Cause we're going to be talking a lot about that side of it when we get to the 2018 Halloween. Mm-hmm. But in this, I think every time they became aware that they were going into something deep, they had to pull back and just make it popcorny and fun again. <laughs> what do you have against fun, Alex? I don't have anything against fun. I, <laughs> Just I not love, in a Halloween movie. No, Season of the Witch is just fun. Because at no point in that movie, like, you know, speaking of alcoholism, there's like, <laughs> there's the several nods to the fact that Tom Adkins is a lush. 
but it's never shown that it's his coping mechanism. It's just part of his personality. And then they never at any point go far enough into it to make you start thinking, oh, well, maybe this is like uh, a movie about dependency and things like that. Whereas mm-hmm. this, they kind of go a little bit too far into it and then try to pull it back. I am fuck you I am all for fun especially in Halloween movies we can have a good time just watch Rob Zombie's Halloween (laughs) for a good time watch both of Rob Zombie Halloween movies oh Jesus it's it's so truncated and anything that can be considered a a well thought out idea seems to be persona non grata in this movie a lot of the the reading I did on this, it didn't sound too unlike Halloween six and with the studio meddling and the director's disagreement and things like that. But obviously the story of this, I don't think at any point was quite as insane as what the things that Halloween six tried to achieve, but man, it, it just does not succeed. And I know it's so pedantic and nerdy, but God damn, that mask thing really <laughs> takes me out of this. That first, like first full shot, like a close up shot. You see of Michael with that God awful CG mask. So, I, so why, why is the mask CG? So Julio, it's fitting that you ask. Cause I did actually dog ear, uh, going back to taking shape, the developing Halloween from script to screen book by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins that I have referenced on every episode so far in Haddonfield nights. They did an interview with Patrick uh, Lucier, who was the editor on Halloween H2O. And when asked about the mask controversy and as far as the film editing and how that affected it, he said the first mask that Steve chose, the Weinsteins hated Steve being the director, Steve Miner. It really was an echo of Scream because if you watch the opening of Scream, you can see three different masks. It just reminded me of that, so it was very similar. There was sort of a battle going on over the mask. I remember Steve checking out one of the studio executives, literally ordering him out of the daily screenings and telling him he wasn't allowed to be there anymore. And I was sitting in between the two of them, so that was awesome. The mask that it ended up being was designed by Stan Winston. The mask was used for the majority of the film. Stan was doing the croc for Lake Placid, which Steve was going to direct next, so he did it for Steve as a favor. The Weinsteins were trying to push Steve into using the mask from Halloween 6, because obviously that was their claim to fame so far, so they Mm -hmm. wanted that, which Steve hated. He said, I hate that mask. I'm not using that. You know, if you want to give me the original mask, and they would immediately say, oh, we can't do that. It's William Shatner. (laughs) The compromise was what Steve had created, and that ended up being used for the bulk of the film. There were certain scenes that were reshot with that mask. The whole scene in the cafeteria at the end where the shape is flinging tables, there's a whole other version of that scene with the original sort of blank face mask, and the lights are on. It's as bright as it can be with Jamie hiding underneath the tables and everything like that. And then it was reshot to be dark with the other mask. And that's the version in the final. Other than that, editing wise, we cut around it where we could. We lived with the different masks where we could. There was one terrible digital shot of the mask behind Charlie with the, (laughs) the trash disposal sequence. That's just fucking awful. (laughs) And we were assured it was going to be amazing. The CG was going to be fantastic. It's come so far And we're like, oh, my God, it's some bad video game cartoon over his face. (laughs) But by that time, they had decided we were releasing in August, and it was like, this is what we got. This is why they're putting it in. And in the book, they have a 
different pictures of the different masks that were used. So to answer your question, studio meddling was the reason for that and just creative differences over the stupidest of shit. Like I mentioned, for me personally, I like the mask in Halloween 6. It's the one that he's wearing in the beginning when like he kills Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, the nurse. I, I don't know. I've never made a... a major motion picture so i don't (laughs) but i don't see how something like this you know what i mean like in the end again it's not something you notice but when you hear that the fact that they had to reshoot shit because one person didn't think the mask looked good i mean to me that's why you have a director but then obviously studios and producers feel they should have a say in that so yep none of it makes up for that god-awful cg mask that's in there and I, was, I was really hoping that the answer was going to be that uh, they were shooting the movie and they completely forgot to put the mask on Michael for that one sequence. And it wasn't until they were ready and they were like, he's not wearing a mask. Well, <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> they hadn't had one made yet. So the first like month of shooting was just him with uh, the Lone Ranger mask on. They're like, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll get it taken care of later. It's so silly and it's so egocentric and just... Hollywood bullshit that at the end of the day, they, you know, got their rocks off to whatever they wanted or they, they might've felt like I got my way, but the, the audience, like that's the main, there's two main gripes about this movie, the mask thing and the movie, the fact that it's just a scream movie, Steve Miner, you got your way, but at what, at what cost? I mean, come <laughs> on. Uh, dude, I mean, you know, this is just how I'm coming at this movie and this franchise to be honest until you point it out to me all the masks look the same <laughs> wait do you mean in this movie or like in every halloween in every halloween really oh man <laughs> i'm sure okay look first off for what it's worth to me all the iron man armors look the same as well and people yeah. freak out every time that there's like a new Iron Man armor being developed. I'm like, you know, to me, it looks red and yellow, and he has the helmet. It's the same. Uh, so that's on me. I think that attention to detail when it comes to costuming, not my not my forte. Uh, also, I guess because I don't have this the investment, the emotional investment on the, on the mask to begin with. To me, it's just you know Michael Myers's face is just a mask, and it's mm-hmm. if I'm looking at them, you know, side by side, I'm sure I can look at the, I can pick out the differences. And I did mention last episode, I did notice that it was like a bigger mask that looked like all stretched out. I guess it's usually when I, when I'm watching these movies, I I find other things that distract me that catch my attention. So the mask is not really what I go to. Uh, but if I if I was, you, you know, if I was a big fan of the mask the way that you are then of course i I think that that would be something that would catch my eye all the time uh so i understand and i agree there's yeah you know that they can't get their shit together to uh (laughs) to have a consistent mask throughout the entire movie that is uh, just kind of appalling see the big difference with h2o whereas six it was just like they filmed all of it and then afterwards, it became a dispute of how the movie was going to be edited together. This was an example of just like the release date kept getting pushed forward. So kept having to make crunches and sacrifices and quality. And that's why some of the score is like pretty much recycled from Scream because they decided like the last minute they wanted to completely gut the score of the movie. So it's a compliment to the movie that 
you weren't able to pick up on how just completely disjointed some aspects of it were. Um, it seems just really shoddily put together overall. And, you know, these things that I'm bringing up, I'm just trying to get my nerd venting out of the way early <laughs> because I know it's at the end of the day, the mask and the score aren't what define the movie, but they're things that stick out to me. And it's just a hilarious example of the simplicity that this franchise came from to the just absolute convoluted, just bullshit that it became at this stage of its uh <laughs> being (laughs) i i'm pretty sure that's irony i know i've misused the phrase irony on several occasions but uh it's it's fascinating to me and it i say this not just about hollywood but i just say it about media in general it gets to a point especially in an age of remakes recycling homages however you want to church up that idea of thought when you get away from the idea of the original it's that's when you lose people and when you get away from what made something unique and special, the poster of this movie, it's the poster for Scream, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Shout out to Jamie Lee Curtis, man, because uh, she apparently, I don't know what say politics, but she was pushing that the poster for the movie was going to be that shot of Michael peering through the crack in the bathroom stall at that woman. Like she wanted ah. that to be the poster for the movie. But no, they just came out with, Every other horror movie poster in the late 90s, which is fine if they were making something like, you know, I know what you did last summer, Urban Legends, just something that was of that vein. But if you're trying to make a Halloween movie, it that's it's just not going to work. And the way they cast this movie and the way they played it out and everything involved with it, it did not play out like a Halloween movie. And having 22 years to go through and know what I know and watching it now... Uh, it didn't even age poorly. It just, I now know it's a bad movie. <laughs> there is one thing that could have saved Halloween H2O. And that is, according to Jamie Lee Curtis, they had asked Mike Myers, as in Wayne Campbell, to do a cameo in the movie, just walking down the street past Lori, and she does a double take when she sees him. But that fucking asshole said no. And that could have made this entire movie worth it. Yes. I know that's a constant that there have been several Halloween movies where they've tried to get him to do something in it, which is hilarious, but he's just supposed to be such an insufferable prick. It doesn't surprise me that he wouldn't see the humor in it, man. I know that I know you already said that, you know, they already cast him and it's the guy from breakfast club, but can you imagine if he played, uh, you know, Tommy Doyle, Tommy Doyle in the next one, (laughs) it'd be something. He'd do a Shrek accent. (laughs) I mean, Jamie Lee's thought on it was, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but when she did an interview for the 2018 one, she said that H2O was made with true sincerity, but studio meddling, it just kind of fell apart. She thought there were really interesting uh, aspects to the story, kind of what we've touched on already, but said she ended up just doing it for a paycheck. I don't think she's slumming it. I just think oh no, the material these guys were presented wasn't the best. And I understand, Julio, I've been kind of dominating the conversation so far. So I appreciate you letting me get out my... <laughs> to get uh, it out of your chest. My uh, my grievances with the, the more uh, really niche aspects of the movie. So we can move forward now to actually discussing the uh, the meat and potatoes of it. So I kind of went ahead and just decreed it as a bad movie. What uh, What are your thoughts on this? I don't think it's a good movie, but... 
I I had a really good time watching it. <laughs> I was laughing a lot, which I don't know that that's I know that's what the movie wanted me to do, but I uh I think I had the experience with this movie that most people have with Season of the Witch. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to make an effort to to have fun with Season of the Witch, especially the first time around. You know, the, like we talked about in that episode, the first time I watched it, I had a really hard time getting into its vibe. And with this one, I didn't. And I think that, you know, we're five episodes into How Don't Feel Nights. I think it's no surprise to anybody that I would react this way in a way because, one, I'm not the Halloween uh, fan and connoisseur that you are than so many people that dislike this movie are, I think. And also... I like the 90s. That that we have in common. I think that we both oh, yeah. like the, the 90s. So a movie that plays with those 90s aesthetics, those 90s tropes and whatever. Yes, it's ripping off Scream, but at the same time, it works. I I, I agree that it's not what the Halloween movie uh, probably should be. But when I look, when I step back and look at the franchise, I kind of understand because... What was the last Halloween movie that they'd had and the one before that? You know, it's just like, at what point, you know, I completely understand them wanting to do something else. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate that, of course, the something else that they try to do feels a little tainted because it feels derivative, right? Instead of doing something new. Uh, I agree with you. It's got to be, it's, it's a little hard not to kind of jump ahead and start referencing the 2018 version because that I think that's a movie and we'll talk about it in due course like in detail but I think that that's a movie that touches on a, some of the interesting things of H2O but actually has a tone that feels more its own instead of feeling like it's just chasing a trend and, mm-hmm. and that's the problem if, if when you watch H2O yeah it, it feels kind of like a generic horror movie from the late 90s uh I don't have a problem with those. So uh, divorcing it from the experience of it being a Halloween movie, I, you know, I'm fine with that. And even when I consider it a Halloween movie, I'm like, well, I'm not such a hardcore fan of the franchise that I feel deeply offended by the things that are doing when they you know, they go so far from the original or even like the really strong parts of the of the franchise. I, I was not kidding in Contrarian's Corner. I did feel an enthusiasm coming from the movie that was kind of infectious uh it's it's funny that there was so much trouble in the production so much conflict because uh i didn't really feel it that much to me it was just it just felt like a bunch of kids playing pretend the halloween movie you know and and they i felt that it, 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 it's it's funny because the the constant references and callbacks under other circumstances would just get on my nerves yeah. check our boyhood episode yeah <laughs> you know? Uh, but here, I was just kind of... So I was surprised to hear you give it props. I was like, oh, Julio's turning a corner here. I don't know what it is. Maybe it was just kind of uh, pleasure at the fact that I was catching on. <laughs> it, you know, but at the same time, it's, they're obvious, they're pretty obvious references. But I'm not going to... I wasn't kidding, because there's corner. That when, that, uh, when the psycho theme came on, it doesn't make any sense, right? There's no... <laughs> story reason there's no thematic reason there's no reason for the psycho theme to come on while janet lee is walking away other than oh it's janet lee and she was in psycho but it just felt so playful uh that i don't know it just got a big smile out of me and 
I, I, I think that I appreciate the playfulness. Um, I don't think it works enough to for me to like call it a good movie, though. I, I could not care less about anything that's going on with the with the youngsters. Josh Harnett, Michelle Williams, young Robin Williams, the other girl. I don't care. Uh, every time we cut to them, I was that's when I felt really like it was just it's just generic bullshit. You know, right before we start recording, you texted and you're like, you know, Michelle Williams can act. You know, she she is like the only other real actor other than Jamie Lee Curtis, and yes. it's like I don't know that they give her anything to do to where I could say that. You know, she's I mean, she's not bad, but it, she. I don't see anybody getting any, getting to flex anything other than Jamie Lee Curtis, eh, maybe Alan Arkin a little bit, and uh, Adam Arkin. Adam Arkin, sorry, yes, Alan Arkin, Arkin in this would be phenomenal. Oh man, can you see? Can you imagine Alan Arkin hooking up with Michael? Jamie Lee put that goddamn fucking knife down. <laughs> put it down. <laughs> but yeah, Adam Arkin, you know, he gets he gets his moments, uh, but to me. What really makes the story work, what really got me interested was that exploration of Laurie Strode 20 years down the line, having lived with this nightmare over her head and not being able to move past it. Anytime that the movie went there, I was in. I was so in because Jamie Lee Curtis is doing everything she can to make it interesting, to make it feel real. And uh the idea that this would have derailed, that she would have gone sort of into the witness protection program and that this would have derailed her relationship with her son and that it's uh, in the now she's finally in a relationship where she feels comfortable enough to take the big leap to reveal her backstory to her boyfriend. All that stuff, it's just, to me, I'm like, wow, yeah, you could make a really awesome movie uh, with this. You can throw in all the slasher stuff in there eventually, but but as long as you give me enough meat I can I can run with it. The problem is that that's there, you know, sporadically. And then it's just about fucking Josh Harnett and his buddy stealing a bottle of champagne or whatever. And uh, and then the girls cooking some awesome dinner. It's, I don't care about any of that. All that no. stuff, you know, in, in they're trying to be funny and they're talking it's about bullshit and, filler in an 80 minute movie. Yep. Yeah. Just make it about Jamie Lee Curtis. And, and you know, we'll see that that's. You know, we have one movie left, and that I think that again, the strength of that movie is mainly when it focuses on that. The dear listeners, if you go way back to I think our twentieth episode when we talked about Scream Four, from what I remember, that was one of the things that I liked about Scream Four. I'm like, well, this is a movie that, for all its failings, treats its characters as if they were in the fourth installment of a slasher series, and all mm-hmm. of those characters are carrying that baggage and and acting accordingly. And that was what I felt with Jamie Lee Curtis here, that she she felt like the character from the original Halloween, well, 20 years later, and still having to process that bullshit. So that, to me, is as interesting, if not more interesting, than all the other stuff that's been happening in the sequels, right? Uh, I love Loomis. I love the Loomis arc. But, you know, he's not, it feels like for the most part, he was kind of put aside in in the sequels. He was still driving them, but there's not like an actual arc, right? He goes crazier and crazier, more obsessed, more obsessed. But there's, I think I even mentioned it a little bit on 
our last episode. I think that at one point, like his character arc just kind of hits a wall and it's just like, you know, the, the, the story doesn't develop him anymore. And so to see Lori uh, and the storytellers making an attempt at, at developing Lori in that direction is pretty awesome. And the fact that it leads to a climax that directly addresses something that bothered me <laughs> in the original and that bothers me generally in the horror genre. Uh, you know, it's like, she goes the extra mile to try to make sure that this is it, that this is where it ends. Uh, again, more future echoes of what we're going to see in, in the next installment uh, mm-hmm. in this in this series. But I love the fact that she just goes batshit crazy, steals the allegedly dead body of her brother, and just doesn't stop until she chops his head off. That's so refreshing that it really... It bums me out that the movie, that the rest of the movie is not as good as that, or as good as all the Lori scenes, uh, that they had to, you know, put up all the, the, I mean, for lack of a better term, like all the screen bullshit, you know, <laughs> yeah. in it. That that sucks. So I understand your frustration. It doesn't bother me as much as you do because I still had a good time watching the movie. But when it ends, I'm just like, ah, bummer. You know, it should have been this good all the time. One of the scenes that was originally written before they had decided, uh, we're just going to retcon three, four, five, and six. And well, obviously three being an outlier, but uh, basically this is going to be a direct sequel to two. One of the original scenes that was written that I was reading about in that book that sounded so fucking awesome. And it plays into kind of what you're talking about was going to be that the class that Lori teaches because obviously they don't know she's Lori Strode Mm -hmm. and so was going to be doing like projects on like American crimes or something and someone was going to do a presentation on the Haddonfield murders and it was they were basically going to you know recount what happened in the original Halloween two four five and six and kind of talk about how uh, you know, this woman abandoned her daughter who was eventually hut down and killed by her crazy uncle. And it was going to be like showing Lori's reaction to it. And just, I, I feel like that could have been a really cool scene to why I would want to see that scene is because the most interesting stuff in this is uh, Lori and her coping with it. As far as, you know, the other stuff goes, that idea of the Lori character works better if you have someone to play off of. And with all due respect to Josh Hartnett, he is not Judy Greer as far as his ability as an actor. (laughs) And so the best is yet to come. But in discussing Mr. Hartnett, Jamie Lee Curtis recalled Josh Hartnett being someone who wanted to be an actor but didn't want the trappings of stardom. He would wear a knit beanie on set at all times, remove it to film a scene, then immediately return it to his head as a way of retaining his personality. I respected him for it. It was annoying, but I respected him for it. That... (laughs) That is an interesting quote because I'm not really sure when Josh Hartnett's ever going to come up again here on The Contrarians, but <laughs> he's he's an interesting cat. It's not like Orlando Bloom, and we've joked about him. I, I was about to bring it up. I was I was basically going to ask, do you think that the Josh Hartnett experiment was more successful than the Orlando Bloom experiment? Well, see, with Josh Hartnett, and I'm looking over his filmography right now, maybe Pearl Harbor. I'm just trying to think of like, with Orlando Bloom, you know, we have something we can point to and be like, boom, that's where it went wrong. <laughs> Though, don't believe that shit because what we've learned <laughs> in the past 15 years is that Elizabethtown is not that bad of a movie. 
Pearl Harbor is still a really bad movie. Yep. Maybe it's just because the mindset I'm in here, but that quote from um, Jamie Lee was very fascinating about he wanted to be an actor, but he didn't really give a shit about all that other stuff. Unfortunately, to have that mindset, you kind of have to be someone like Daniel Day-Lewis that's just like generationally talented. And I don't think uh, Josh Hartnett is necessarily in that same category. He was good in Black Hawk Down. And um, he was fine in Black Dahlia. It's just that movie's not that good. Mm -hmm. So here it just seems kind of silly. It's he does to me. It doesn't seem like his heart's in it. uh, Where I can say his like delivery of his dialogue in Black Dahlia, like you can tell he wants to do that. But like the opening scene in this, where he's like, "No, mom, Mm -hmm. I'm 17. I can do what I want." I'm just like, brother, uh, (laughs) not buying it. (laughs) <laughs> and so much of this, so much of this, because we are in the month of October where you do watch a horror movie every night. And I did just watch the first scream the other night. Uh, you know, Jamie Kennedy, Matthew Lillard, and even not Johnny Depp, uh, Skeet Ulrich <laughs> in that movie, all three phenomenal with their delivery in that. So it's, I knew, I know that what they were looking for could be accomplished at that point in time. So I, I just, I think maybe his heart wasn't completely in it. I don't know. I don't know the guy, but I don't want to harp have on you him. Ever, have you ever been, I want to like rag on him because really I don't, it's not like he, I've ever watched a movie where I was like, man, Josh Harnett just sucks. Uh, but, I, but I'm thinking, I was like, I've never watched a movie where I went, wow, this Josh Harnett guy, he's he's going to, you know, I get, I get it now, right? Uh, have you ever had that experience? Uh, no, that's that's also completely valid. I mean, there are a lot of guys like that. We've joked about all the Josh Dumal and the, <laughs> the guys. Josh Dumal, we just dragged them into the conversation. <laughs> well, no, or we had that joke in one of our Alien episodes with all the rejected specimens. We were talking about like it was uh, <laughs> Orlando Bloom walking in and just seeing you know Josh Hartnett. I can't right. remember who else we named in that scene, but it's, it's standard shit. We see this every five, 10 years in Hollywood to your question about Josh Hartnett though. No, I don't there. There's nothing that he was like ever blow away in, but again, that could just be, he was never really given a chance, but I mean, it could have been, could have been too soon. Uh, it could have been, you know, direction he was given in his career mm-hmm. that didn't work. Cause he just, I mean, he had that perfect turn of millennium look and I mean, he's only 42, so he would have been, he was 20 when he made this movie. And he had that, just like the way his face was structured and his style, quote unquote. And I was watching this, Was uh, did that ever make its way to Peru, that hairstyle where you just leave your hair messy, like you don't do anything with your hair? No, I'm, I'm trying to think, and not, not really. No, I think that when it came to hairstyles, we were probably like five years removed. So if it made it, it was I was already living in the in the states by then. You were just now getting into your Eddie Vedder, Kurt Cobain shoulder length hair period. <laughs> yes. But yeah, watching this, I was remembering that that was one of the bigger struggles that sticks out from my childhood. Eh, maybe not childhood, but more like early teens when this look was like a thing, and my parents just refusing to believe that a hair look was that your hair was messy. <laughs> and like, you know, like making me comb my hair before I went to school. Just maybe like, no, this is how people wear it. Go look at Josh Hartnett. He does it. That was an early thought I had from the beginning. That very first scene between him and Jamie Lee Curtis. I remember it's a thinking, fair point. Yeah, I remember thinking, I see what they're going for. 
But all this is doing is just making me wish Michael kills this kid early on in the movie. <laughs> and But I was also aware that that's not what the movie wanted. You know, the, the movie just wanted to create some conflict to make him an interesting character, make their relationship interesting. But I shouldn't... And, and that was my thought. I was like, man, you... I'm sure you could cast an actor that has a different kind of vibe that has, I don't want to say if I say, you know, that has more charisma, it sounds a little mean, but, but that's kind of, that's a way to put it, right? If you cast somebody more charismatic, then there are actors that can get away with being assholes to their fictional mothers. And we don't completely turn on them. Instead, we're just kind of hoping that they see the error of their ways. What I got from Josh Hartnett's performance was just, he deserves whatever's coming to him. And uh, that's also an obstacle when you're watching the movie. Because if you're not rooting for this kid, if you don't care, if you're actually actually rooting against him, then half the movie doesn't work for you. Because half the movie is devoted to him and his buddies. And just kind of circling back, uh, yeah, young Robin Williams does nothing for me. And <laughs> the girl who plays young Robin Williams' girlfriend, I, I do want to circle back to, I did text you and... Yeah, Michelle Williams is so infinitely better than everyone in this movie that isn't Jamie Lee Curtis. It's, and you said you didn't really notice anything. I guess that's because I was just looking and paying attention so ferociously, I guess, <laughs> to like everything she did. And it was just like her facial expressions, her reactions to things. Specifically, there's one shot where they're all running away and. Michelle Williams, Josh Hartnett, and Jamie Lee Curtis come out of like this door that leads on this stairwell to the outside, and some really shitty song from Screams playing. But they're <laughs> running away from Michael, and Michelle Williams is like legitimately crying, and not just like in a horror movie girl type way of like, "Oh no, don't kill me!" Like, it's easy to watch this now and go, "God, she's fucking good," because we've had twenty-two years of movies where she's amazing, mm -hmm. uh, but watching it tonight she was like one of my main takeaways like everything she does is very good having just recently watched uh the original nightmare on elm street um i can't remember how much we talked about that when we did the episode but same thing with johnny depp just like his timing and everything it's like yeah mm -hmm. duh it, it, he's sorry heather langenkamp you seem like a really sweet woman but this guy is clowning you when you guys are on screen together and that's right she uh, got her due eventually she made it to a new nightmare and she did and, and then the tables turned because she was clowning uh, Wes Craven in their scene together. Uh, LL Cool J, I think it's funny. I think they do enough to where he seems kind of silly and goofy, but it's not to the point of being annoying because that is, as you and I have discussed numerous times, and if you've watched maybe two slasher movies in your life, you know is a very annoying trope is the mm -hmm. character, the side character that's like perverted or has you know kind of a niche interest of some sort. But LL Cool J is fine. He's great. There's um, There has to be a cut where he never comes back, right? Where he actually died. <laughs> this was my sister's first time watching this movie. And she's like, well, the black guy getting killed just for being there does not age very well. <laughs> and, yep. and my thought was, it. yeah, it didn't age well five minutes after it came out either. Like, it just kind of <laughs> seems a bit too unfortunately on the nose but yeah he lived cool i appreciate the idea that they wanted to put some sort of finality on the ending but 
Man, when you're older than 14, decapitation scenes really aren't that cool anymore. So <laughs> watching that now, it's just kind of like, whatever. But and if it was... Whole- if, if it was at decapitation, you know, not in the context of the 90s, if it was, you know, if the next Halloween movie ended that way, shot as a movie that's being shot, you know, today, and just basically, because it just seems so final. I think that's what I like. I, I Even though I know it isn't, there is just a very, there's a commitment to say this is how it ends. <laughs> it's, his head is off his body. We've never seen it go that far. Yeah. And now, uh, now Lori is the monster. I felt that still be, you know, kind of uh, found it stirring. Uh, if you were to see that happen in the next Halloween movie, would a decapitation be that much of a letdown? Kind of. I mean, there were a couple moments of hyper violence in the most recent one. I think decapitations at this point are kind of just a cheap way out. Watch me jinx myself now, and it's that's all <laughs> that happens in the next one. <laughs> now you want him quartered. Yeah, I should rephrase in that decapitations, if you're going to do it, it needs to be dumb and it needs to be really silly. It needs to be some sort of Jason type shit with this movie and how it's played for like real terror. The fact that she just lobs his head off at the end is just, come on, what are we doing? (laughs) It, It all seems so silly and contrived. You know, again, if nothing else, this movie is a movie with an identity crisis, and it's a movie that the people that were in charge of it did not... uh, I think they knew how to make a Halloween movie. They just didn't want to. And (laughs) the one thing in Scream that always bothers me is Rose McGowan getting chopped up in the the garage door. Mm -hmm. Because that's the same thing. This movie's rooted in some sense of realism and some sense of real terror, and then there's this ridiculously over-the-top death scene that you know could not really happen but i guess that's it's paying homage to its genre every time i watch scream i come away from it with a renewed vigor and just thinking of like my god this movie's incredible um (laughs) halloween h2o is not the same i would say that i'm fine with it existing it was a casualty of an industry that was completely changed forever with the release of a movie a year and a half before it for that i'm fine with it and i understand it and due to its length i like you had mentioned last week about um curse of michael myers this would be a perfectly acceptable party movie like throwing on at a party in the background just because the cast it has and you know it does have some fun kills and action in it but as far as the ranking and the mythos surrounding it in the Halloween franchise. I'm not too complimentary of it. I would put it below five and maybe six (laughs) below five. What the fuck? (laughs) Five has the part where Jamie's trying to explain the logo on the building she's seeing, and she's trying to say the word cookie and Donald Pleasance goes cookie woman. (laughs) That was a a seminal moment in American cinema. If nothing else, Halloween 5 tries to be a Halloween movie in whatever the fuck they thought that meant in 1989. (laughs) This tries to be a Scream movie in 1999 or 1998, excuse me. Okay, so what's your grade? Uh, Michelle Williams saves it from being an F. I'd give it a, a D. Man, that's that's impressive uh, that that she is the one that saves it, not not uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. 
Jamie Lee is very good, but we see an improved version of this uh, 20 years later. Yeah, but that's not this movie's fault. <laughs> Come on. No, but reviewing all this in retrospect. Um, yeah, yeah. Jamie but... Lee is good. It reminded me, like, Jamie Lee did not age for a long time because she looks exactly the same in this as she does in Freaky Friday, which came out five, six years afterwards. I don't know if you saw my my tweet. I tweeted a picture of the movie before I started it, and uh, it said, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, in parentheses, you again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. That had to be a rib. Whoever did that was like, no one's going to notice this. All right. Well, I give it two and a half stars right down the middle for me because I, it, it's funny. I I understand what you're saying. Yes, we we have seen, it, in a way, you know, the, the, the tense of these uh, verbs is really weird. You, We will see this done better. Yeah. And in fact, we have because we're in the year 2020 <laughs> but i i do give it credit for going there back in 98 and and somehow when i'm watching it i appreciate that and maybe it's because the way that we're watching these movies you know we just watch uh you know 6 and in 3 and yeah. 1 and i've seen you know 4 and 5 and so i kind of this was something that i was missing and uh, and it's kind of a pleasant surprise to see that it was there even before the 2018 movie came out. You know, we'll we'll talk about 2018 next episode, but it's it was it was it's fine because I had no idea that this movie had any sort of uh, uh, that it would even go into Laurie's character in that way. Makes sense, but I didn't know that they would. I thought it was going to be even more of a generic slasher than it already is. So. Uh, yeah, actually, two two and a half. I had a good time. I laughed. I uh, I was happy that Janet Lee was not killed. I, if yes, I that... ever watch it again, I don't know that I ever would, but if I ever did, I think all the uh, screen parallels would bother me more now that you've pointed them out. But, you know, unlike you, I did not watch Scream again very recently, so it was not in my memory at all. Uh, do you think that you would have enjoyed this a little more if you hadn't watched Scream a couple nights ago? Absolutely. Yeah, if I hadn't just, I watched Scream on Saturday night, and if I had not done that, this would have been, uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday, if I had not done that, this would have been a different experience, but eventually, I would have realized it, I still would have had the same problems with the score and the mask, but, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, and I think it's it's near impossible to not view this as like a universe. And, you know, I hate that term, but I'm lacking uh, anything else with we've spent at this point five weeks and we've got another one here uh, at the end of the day, we're going to have spent two months, you and I watching and discussing to extreme lengths, this franchise. So it becomes almost without, you know, whether I want to or not, uh, overly impassioned about the subject and will result in me being more verbose uh, about when I don't like it and when I do. So in this particular situation, I think I, I know that the people that made this made what they wanted to, uh, with the exception of the mask drama bullshit. <laughs> the studio that financed this got what they wanted. Uh, it seems that the director pretty much got what he wanted, and it seems that the screenplay, when it was finally done, it went through several iterations, but it seems uh, 
not really close to the treatment of the film, but when they f- made a screenplay, it didn't seem like it went too crazy. I didn't hear about anything that, you know, massive shifts in tone or things of that nature once production began. So uh, it made money. The people got paid. It has its place in the pop culture zeitgeist, what have you. Creed was involved in it. So <laughs> Creed it, got paid. Creed got paid. It's just for me and, you know, hashtag my Halloween. Man, this was a, an upsetting viewing just for uh, <laughs> how, how much I was walking away from this, just like feverishly shaking my head no at it. But figuratively, this walked so Halloween 2018 could run, as we will see. Yep, yep. So not an entirely waste of an entry in the HCU, the Halloween Cinematic Universe. Oh, God. <laughs> God help me. So, Julio, I'm going to close on this quote from Jamie Lee Curtis herself that she did when this movie was made. Uh, This was an interview she did with the Detroit Free Press when promoting the film. Originally, I saw Lori in some flophouse, tormented and talking to herself, operating on the fringes of reality. But I was finally convinced it was too bleak of a place to begin. And I think that is the perfect quote to end this chapter on and to set the table for what is to come in our final <laughs> installment of Haddonfield Nights with the 2018 Halloween, which is a direct sequel to the 1978 masterpiece. The, the way that these, that the, the chronology, the timeline just splits and splinters and doubles back on itself. It's, uh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's fascinating. And that's the thing. Like I, I know our listener, our fan base, uh, they could understand how we could probably get so much out of these, but I think with something as ridiculous as the Halloween franchise, just at a first glance, people may be like, how are you going to get six episodes out of that? (laughs) All of which are like nearing two and a half hours long for God's sake. (laughs) But they provide us with this material, Julio. It must be discussed. Yeah. It would be a waste not to, not to talk about it. (laughs) All right. Winding down for this episode of the contrarians. We are one episode away for from finishing our Haddonfield Nights journey and it, it's been quite a journey thus far. Uh, along the way the festive years have provided our opening and closing tracks opening us up with Last Stand closing us out with Summer of 99 uh, as always, not just for Haddonfield Nights but for the Contrarians uh, history. Greatly appreciate uh, them lending us some good tunes. Uh, be sure to head to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Yes. Uh, speaking of Contrarians history, almost five years ago, I don't know how long we've had the the, the official Contrarians logo that Hans Ruth Geezer made for us, but it, it feels like it's been a while at this point. Uh, it's funny because I'm looking at our Werby setup and it has the old logo. Do you see it too on, on your screen, Alex? The big Criterion-inspired logo? Uh, no. That you That, that you one made I made in MS Paint in like 30 seconds, yeah. Yeah, was... yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I can see it because it's it's part of my uh, my Google account on this on this thing. But uh, it's so yeah. We we used to have that, and then we we became a legit podcast where we had uh, a legit logo. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Thank you, Hazard Dieter, for uh, for doing the logo. He's an artist, obviously. He's also a podcaster. He's a novelist. He's an economist. If you can put all that together, 
He uh, has a website, mildemonios.pe, where you can check all his work. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E-P-E for Peru. Uh, you can listen to his podcasts. Uh, he has two in Spanish, Nación Combi and Marginal. Those are in any podcatcher. One is about Peruvian current affairs. One is about economy. He has a podcast in English called Living in Peru. That's on iBox. And uh, like I said, he's a novelist. He has a whole bunch of zombie novels. The most recent one is one that he didn't write. He just published. He basically uh, compiled a whole bunch of uh, zombie short stories written by different Peruvian authors. And then uh, just released it. It's called Zomos Zombies. And uh, I cannot wait to read it next time I go to Peru. Which, who knows when that'll be, dear friends. Because... Dude, I was just about to say, you asked how long ago he made our logo, and I was about to say, well, January seems like it was seven years ago, so I, what is time at this point? He was pre-pandemic, we know that much. And yeah, and when, more recently, uh, well, he did our, our, our Haddonfield Nights logo, which is also, uh, you can see it on our Twitter and our Instagram, so anyway... Mad props to Hans. Thank you for everything you've done. And for the other stuff that you've done that we haven't revealed yet. But it's coming. And uh, lastly, I want to give a shout out to Zoe Perez, the curator, the fixer-upper, the make-it-pretty person for our social media, uh, especially our Instagram account, making all those fancy posts for y'all and uh, helping to spruce up our Facebook account as well. Zoe, much appreciated. All right. So that wraps it up for this most recent stop in Haddonfield Nights. That is going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Summer of 1999